0: Oh, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenna Beefish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to our 30th episode, man, 30 episodes, that's fucking great, of the Nauticast entitled Asking Questions, an analysis of a Game of Thrones edited 7, in which the hand's turning comes to a bloody, bloody close, and the titular hand has some very... Very revealing conversations with king robert and varas the spider this episode is brought to you by all of our lord's commander mark n timothy w hayden j wolfman zach and joe l thank you gentlemen very much thank you as always our spoiler warning we'll be talking about all published books that is the five novels the three duncan egg novellas histories interviews the winners sample chapters as well as game of thrones a tv show
1: anything and everything so our question for the week comes from one of our Sworn Sword patrons, Sir John M., recently joined up. Thank you, sir. He asks, This past episode made me more curious, especially with your referring to the proof of the, quote, twin-cest. So here it is. How did Ned Stark, when confronting Cersei, know that Jamie was the father of her children? Certainly the kids weren't Roberts due to the black of hair Baratheon trait. <laughs> However, what leap in logic did Ned, or possibly Jon Arryn and Stannis before him, made him think Jamie the father? To me, this is a bit of a stretch, even in a Targaryen world. There wasn't anything <laughs> in the novel I found that Ned was even thinking such a thing before his confrontation with Cersei. Now, once it was presented to Cersei, she didn't deny it. But I don't think for one minute that Ned was trying to trick her into admitting it. He's an honorable guy, but he isn't that clever. So, as yeah. to the proof of the Twincest, where is this proof? Let's face it, there isn't any proof because Cersei could, and would prove true later, have been banging anyone. Personally, I think this is an oversight in the books. Thoughts? And what are your thoughts, Jeff?
0: Yeah, I think you make a good point, Sir John, about there being some leaps in logic. And something that I was talking about with a few friends today is about things that are like narrative fissures in a Game of Thrones that only become apparent when you're like reading and when you're rereading these books for like the sixth or seventh time that you're like, you know, George does make some leaps at points, and he really, really, really does thumb the scale against the Starks um, in order to ensure Ned's downfall in this book itself. So there is a point where there is some narrative fissure. I don't know that this is one of those points, though. And we're going to talk about this in our analysis of Edward Seven. But something that's of interest is that Ned has a stray thought here where he's thinking about Gendry and who Gendry's father is. He thinks that it's not Renly who fathered Gendry because of his age. He also thinks it's not Stannis because of Stannis's honor and his sense of duty and that he was not the type of man that Robert was. So he deduces correctly that it, that Robert was the father of Gendry. Now, the same could be said for the fact that Jamie is the father with Cersei. As we know later on in this book, Ned determines the parentage of the land, of the Baratheon kids because of reading the book and determining that any child born to the Baratheons are all black of hair. And any children born from the Lannisters, and Lannisters alone are gold of hair. And there was only one instance in the past, I believe, where Baratheons and Lannisters had previously had children, and those children had been born black of hair. So Ned deduces that the kids are Lannisters, and that really only leaves a couple of options for the father of of the kids. You have Lancel, who is 15 and does start a relationship with Cersei at some point at the end of a Game of Thrones or early in a Clash of Kings after Jaime is taken prisoner by the Starks. And you have Jaime. Those are the two major Lannister figures in King's Landing at this time. So I think Ned made the correct deduction that the father of the kids was Jaime and that there really was no other person that it could be. because And none of the other Lannisters were in King's Landing at that point. I mean, Ned will talk about how Cersei has surrounded herself with – Lannister retainers, but these aren't Lannister individuals. They're not House Lannister people. They're loyalists to Tywin Lannister, people like Pycelle, among others, but they're not Lannisters per se. So I'm not sure if it's an oversight necessarily in the books. I, I guess you can make a case that there's you know some small leaps that George makes in order to make the story what it is, but I do think it it works in the context of, of what we know about the Lannisters and what we do find out about Black of hair, all the kids all the Baratheon kids are black of hair. So what do you think, Emmett?
1: Well said, sir. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we can admit that the kindergarten level <laughs> genetics in this first book is not the strongest plot point in the series. It's yeah. necessary for where Martin is going with these characters. True. It's not exactly durable on its own. Having said that, you know, Ned, as you say, realizes that the King's Bastard was significant in some way, and when he finds out that when he when Sansa int, intimates that Joffrey is nothing like Robert, he kind of puts that together, and I think he probably puts that together with what Catelyn told him about Bran—that she had her suspicions that Jaime Lannister threw him from the tower. Right. I mean, we didn't directly see her say that, but we saw her say that in Winterfell to Rob and Theon and uh, Sir Roderick. and we can presume that when Catelyn filled Ned in upon arrival in King's Landing, that that was part of it. Yes. So there's there's the intimation that Bran knew something, he saw something, and Ned doesn't know what that is. Until he realizes that Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella are not Robert's kids, and then I, I imagine he put it together and realized, oh, what Bran <laughs> saw right. the reason Jamie threw him was Bran caught them caught Jamie and Cersei together. Right. Having said that, I think Martin could have included that as a as a, a stray line of dialogue in Ned's thoughts, like right before he confronts Cersei, you could have had him putting it together. Sure. Because I, I think as it stands, it does kind of come off as Ned making a leap. I think there's enough reason for him to do so, like you say. But it might be a case where Martin made a classic writer's mistake where you know something so completely... That you don't feel the need to convey it to your audience uh, explicitly because you know it so deeply, you've kind of forgotten that they might not necessarily, or that the character doesn't necessarily. So I, I think that's that's a reasonable enough critique, but I wouldn't go so far as to call it a, an outright flaw in the novel. I think there's enough grounding for for Ned to make the leap he does.
0: Sometimes you have to do have to allow your your writers of fiction. There's small little leaps in, in places like that. I do agree that there could have been a point where Ned could have thought it. But at the same time, like thinking it from a writer's perspective, you don't want to offset the tension that you're building up to that confrontation between Ned and Cersei in the Godswood before it happens. So Ned coming right out and thinking as he's walking over to the Godswood, ah, now I will finally prove that Jamie and Cersei are, were lovers and that they, that they were the parents of these kids. It does kind of deflate the tension where Martin needs to kind of build it up that. So you do have to examine some of these questions in the context of Kind of the writers, what the, what are writers doing? And a writer is attempting to enhance the tension and build it to that climax that we see in the Godswood. So I, I guess that would probably be my final take on why why it sometimes might not work when you think about it. But ultimately, it's it's you do have to give some leeway to the writer and how they're trying to build tension in the narrative
1: itself. Agreed, good buddy.
0: <laughs> oh, we just agree too much, man. It's just just our thing. We. After last it's week's... ruining
1: the drama of the show, That's true. I know, after
0: last week's uh, insane debate at the end, I mean, I just i feel like everyone's going to be let down by all the agreement we're going to have in this episode.
1: We got to get to Jamie chapters so you can <laughs> wax on, and I can go, yeah, that's true, but I don't care. <laughs> well, you did get me to say that he was that'll a villain be, last That'll, be, week, that'll so. be much more fun for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Very, very true. So...
0: Thank you, Sir John, for the question. Thanks again for your recent patronage. Again, if you are interested in learning more about our Patreon and how you can become a patron, as well as be able to ask these questions, asking questions is a tier, is a perk for our $10 and above patrons. Check us out at patreon.com forward slash not ASOF, where you can find bonus episodes, show notes, and you can find the ability to ask us questions and get early release of these episodes as well. So thank you very much to all our patrons. and Thank you, Sir John, particularly for this week. And now we're on to A Game of Thrones, Edard Seven, And here is its synopsis. Lord Eddard Stark and Sir Barristan Selmy stand over the body of Sir Hugh of the Vale discussing the young dead knight and his family. He had a mother in the Vale, apparently, but no one else. So Sir Barristan had stood vigil over his body the night prior to honor his status as a knight. Ned had arrived that morning to pay his respects and ponder whether Sir Hugh of the Vale had died for him and his investigation. He supposed he would never know. Some backstory on Sir Hugh was discussed between Ned and Barristan. He was John Aaron's squire for four years and was knighted by Robert Baratheon himself before he headed north to reach out to Ned. The thing was that he wasn't really ready to be a knight according to Barristan. No one is really ready for death, Ned corrects. Definitely a Ned Stark moment there. But Ned's not doing so hot himself. He's exhausted and he's finding the business of running the country fucking awful. And there were men dying in his name for a tourney he didn't even want in the first place. He commands the Silent Sisters to send his armor back to Sir Hugh's mom. It'll be worth a silver at the very least. When Barriss is unsure whether Sir Hugh had finished paying the smith who had made his armor, Ned replies that he paid dearly for it with his life. Ned will take care of any monetary costs associated with his armor. Ned and Barrison then walk back to the King's Pavilion as breakfast is prepared and Ned gets into Sansa mode looking on at the various sigils and coats of arms among the pavilions outside of the tourney grounds. The king means to fight in the melee today, Barristan says to Ned. Yes, Ned replies grimly. Barrison hopes that Robert might have forgotten about his vow to fight, but Ned knows better. Robert would never back down from a fight. The two men walk into, Robert, into Robert's pavilion with Ned hoping to find Robert in an alcohol and do sleep, but his hopes are brought up short. Robert is drinking true, but he's in full Conan the Barbarian mode as he roars at his Lannister squires to help him into his gorget and breastplate. When Ned states that the squires are not at fault for Robert's armor not fitting and that the true fault lay with the king's obesity, Robert grouses about the way Ned talks to him before bursting into laughter and asking Ned why he's always right. The squires in turn smile nervously and then Robert yells at them to go to Sir Aaron Sentigar to get the breastplate stretcher. When the boys scamper off, Barrison and Robert laugh while even Ned manages to smile. Ned inquires after the squires. They're both Lannisters. They needed places of honor in King's Landing and Cersei had forced the issue on Robert. She has a very large family after all. A very ambitious family, Ned thinks. Though Ned isn't personally opposed to these boys, he's not exactly enamored with the idea of Lannisters surrounding Robert. The talk is, you and the Queen had angry words last night, Ned tells Robert. This sours Robert's mood, and he tells Ned that Cersei forbid him to find the upcoming melee. Lyanna would have never done that. Yeah, okay, Bob, sure. You never knew as I did, Robert, Ned tells his king. You saw her beauty, but not the iron underneath. She would have told you that you had no business in the melee. Robert is disappointed that Ned is also against him fighting, but he's a hashtag real man and real man fight. Sure, Robert will sit the iron throne when he has to, but sometimes he just want to fucking hit someone. Barrison comments that the kings don't melee, and besides, it's not really a fair contest. No one would hit Robert. Robert is shocked at this. They should fight him, and the last man will be you, Ned finishes for Robert. Well, Bob's not happy about that. He yells at them to get out or he'll kill them. Barristan moves to the exit, but Robert stops Ned. Not you, Ned. You stay and have a drink while you're at it. Damn your protests about not day drinking. So Ned has a beer with his friend and king. Robert thinks about how alive he felt when he was taking the throne and how dead he feels sitting it. He complains he doesn't like being king, doesn't like his wife, and he'll brook no arguments from Ned about whose claim was better. And his children, man, how did he get a son like Joffrey? I wonder. You see, he's dreamed of crossing the narrow sea to play the role of a sellsword king, but the only thing that keeps him from doing this is the thought of Joffrey on the Iron Throne. Ned hears the hurt in Robert's voice and attempts to console him, saying that Joffrey is really only a boy and maybe he'll grow up a little. And this does cheer Robert a little bit, as he thinks to Jon Arryn and how his foster father didn't know if Robert would turn to a good king. When Ned says nothing, Robert grouses that Ned could agree once in a while if he dared try. When Ned starts to carefully speak, Robert cuts him off with an, Ah, say that I'm a better king than Eras and be done with it. You can never lie for love or nor honor, Ned Stark. And then Robert comes out of his black mood, talking about how things will be different. Damn the Lannisters. And then Robert remembers stories from his youth, and Ned thinks that things will finally start going right. He'll prove the Lannisters murdered Jon Arryn, and if Tywin rises in revolt, Robert will warhammer his way to victory against the West. And then they go to the hands turning. Ned joins up with Sansa in the stands, having promised his daughter that he'd be here today. He knows that Cersei isn't present, and he's pretty pleased by this. But then we're back to the races. Tilts. Whatever. And first up, it's Sandric Legane versus Jamie Lannister. Littlefinger bets 100 Golden Dragons on Jamie, Renly takes that bet, and the two champions face off against each other with Ned all the while thinking that he would love nothing so well as to see both of them lose. The horses race at each other, and the lances collide, and Sandric Legane is very nearly knocked from his saddle, but somehow he manages to hang on. New lances grab, the horses go at each other yet again, but this time, Sanders' lance catches Jaime, and the Kingslayer falls to the ground with a crack and twisted helmet. Renly laughs that if Tyrion were here, he would have won twice as much gold, given that Tyrion would bet on Jaime. Yeah, about that. Next, we have our (laughs) would-be penultimate tilt. It's Sir Gregor Clegane versus Loras Tyrell. Now, Ned had really never taken much stock in Gregor. Sure, he'd ridden with him in the Greyjoy Rebellion, but he'd never really even spoken to the man. And Gregor had spent most of his time away from King's Landing in his keep, where he allegedly murdered his father, his sister, and his two former wives. And there were dark rumors that he had murdered Aegon Targaryen and raped Elia of Dorne at the end of Robert's Rebellion. But Gregor standing before Ned now is disquieting. The man is huge, much larger than even Robert, Stannis, or Hodor, or anyone else that Ned has really ever seen. In contrast, when Loras Tyrell makes his appearance, he is the soul of chivalry, at least in how he looks with his roses and polished armor and saddle of woven flowers. It's really ridiculous, as Chloe was talking about last week. But of course, what isn't ridiculous about the Tyrells? I ask you. Anyhow, Sansa is still enamored of Loras and begs her father not to let anything happen to the Tyrell boy. Ned reassures her that these are turning lances. Not that this stops Sir Hugh from being killed, but, you know, they're just turning lances. Anyways, the two men ride their horses in front of the king, but strangely, Gregor's horse is kicking and bucking and nearly throwing Gregor from the saddle. Curious. The two men line up, face each other, and then they charge. Gregor unsteadily tries to get his lance and shield into position, but Loras strikes him hard and the mountain falls to the cheers of the crowd and the laughter of Santa Clegane. The victorious Loris reins up, lifts his visors to smile at the cheers, but all is not well. Gregor Clegane calls for his sword. When it arrives, he brings the sword down against his horse, half severing the beast's head and killing him. Awful. And then he moves towards Loris. Everyone starts shouting, shrieking, screaming. Loris sees what's about to happen, yells for his own sword, but Gregor's blow knocks Loris off his horse before he can get his sword. But just as the mountain is about to murder the bejesus out of Loris Terrell, a rasping voice calls out Leave him be! and a steel-clad hand yanks Gregor, Gregor's shoulder back. The mountain spins around, swinging his sword with him, but Sander parries each time and begins striking back. They fight across the turning field until Robert Baratheon finally gets into Robert in his prime mode. Stop this madness in the name of your king! Sander Gilgain goes to one knee, with Gregor's sword cutting through the air above him, which is a really fantastic scene in the show, by the way. It's uh, really cool how they how they do it in the show. And Gregor, Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's awesome. Gregor pushes past the crowd. Robert tells everyone to let Gregor go, and Sansa asks if Sander's the champion. Ned doesn't think so, but then Loras Terrell gets into legitimate chivalrous true knight mode. I owe you my life. The day is yours, sir. I'm no sir, Sander replies. But he takes the championship, money, and the acclaim of the crowd for the first time all the same. After that, Ned, Sansa, Littlefinger, Barriston, and Renly walk over to the archery competition. Littlefinger complains that Loras Terrell cheated by riding a mare in heat while Gregor rode ill-tempered stallions. Barristan protests that this is dishonorable, and Renly quips that, sure, it's dishonorable, but cash money rules everything around me. Thank you to all the people who were correcting me on Twitter. Appreciate it. Thanks. At the archery competition, an unknown commoner by the name of Angai from the Dornish Marches wins the competition, and at the melee, Thor Amir wins that one too. That night, at the feast, Robert is in a good mood, and the Lannisters were off sulking somewhere. And Ned feels really hopeful about this. Even more hopeful is that Sansa and Arya seem to be getting on for once, with Sansa recounting the tourney and Arya talking about her dancing lessons and how she soared from them. Once Sansa is off dancing herself, Ned asks after Arya's lessons. She tells Ned that Sirio's been hard but fair, teaching her to see with her ears, nose, and skin, and tomorrow she'll be catching cats with her bare hands. Ned is skeptical and wonders aloud whether Arya wants to be trained by someone else, like Barristan or maybe Jory. Nope, she's good with Sirio. Thank you very much, Dad. Ned returns back to the Hand's Tower around midnight, and he begins thinking again. Wondering why Tyrion Lannister would want his son Bran dead. He studies the Cat's Ball Dagger. It must be related to Jon Arryn's death. It must be. But he was lost in a fog here. The only people who knew anything, Stannis and Lysa, are gone. And what of the armor's apprentice? Sure, Jory had been searching the brothels for more of Robert's bastards, but what did it matter that Robert had bastards? He had always had bastards. Gendry, a bastard girl in the veil that Ned had held, and one he even openly acknowledged was his own down in Storm's End. None of them would threaten Robert's trueborn children, right? Haha, <laughs> yeah. All right, George, I see you. Gotcha. But just then, a knock at the door, someone begging Ned's leave to speak with him. Ned says, yeah, sure, why not? It's only midnight, right? And so a stout man in cracked mud cake boots and a heavy brown robe comes through the door. Ned doesn't recognize him even after their introduction, but when the door closes, the cow comes back, and it's none other than Varas the spider. The hell are you doing here, Varas? Well, Varys doesn't immediately reveal that. He asks for a cup of wine and Ned pours one for both Varys and for him. And Ned tells Varys that he would have not have recognized him unless he revealed himself. Yeah, that's kind of the point, Ned. Varys tells him, "Everyone is fucking watching your brother, but the wine's nice, thanks." But wait, how did you get past all my guards? Oh, you know ways only known to ghosts and spiders. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Varys isn't here to talk about such mundane details as how he can get through the Red Keep all incognito and shit. Ned's got to know things. What things? Well, um, Robert Baratheon was supposed to die today in the melee? Yeah. The Lannisters were going to kill him. But wait, hadn't Cersei forbade Robert from fighting? Yeah, no shit, Ned. That's Cersei's slow cunning in action. Forbid Robert to do something, and by the seven, Robert would fight. But who was supposed to have killed Robert if he entered the melee? Nah, that's not really important. There's lots of dudes in there. But the plan seems to have been that whoever it was was going to be very, 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 very sad and cry a lot. And the newly minted King Joffrey would have to forgive the poor cat's ball. Or he would have the man executed. Either way, the Lannisters would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for that rascally Ned Stark throwing monkey wrenches in their conspiracies. But why (laughs) didn't Varys come to Ned with this plot? Well, he might have come, but he didn't trust Ned. Besides, even if Ned told Robert about the plot, the King still would have fought in the melee. But the question comes up again. Why didn't Varys trust Ned? Because, Varys says, There's two types of people in the Red Keep, those who are loyal to themselves and those loyal to the realm. Varys didn't know which type Ned was until Ned confronted Robert before he could partake in the melee. But now Varys sees the worth of Ned Stark, and he sees that Ned is the new sheriff in town, and he has a bit of immunity from harm from the Lannisters due to his relationship with Robert. (laughs) Okay, George, really, this is like, we're, we're, we're really doing this. Okay, all good. But surely there must have been others who could be counted on, Ned says, like, you know, Renly or Stannis. Mm, not so much. Renly and Stannis hate the Lannisters, sure, but everyone has their own game in mind. Sir Barriston loves his honor, Grand Maester Pycelle loves his office, and Littlefinger loves Littlefinger. What about the King's Guard? A paper shield, the eunuch says. Try not to look so shocked, Lord Stark. Jaime Lannister is himself a sworn brother of the White Swords, and we all know what his oath is worth. Days when men like Rhyme Redwine and Prince Amon the Knight wore the White Cloak are gone to dust and song. Of these seven, only Sir Barristan Selmy is made of the true steel, and Selmy is old. Sir Boris and Sir Maron are the queen's creatures to the bone, and I have deep suspicions of the others. No, my lord. When the swords come out in earnest, you will be the only true friend Robert Baratheon will have. Well, damn them all! Robert must be told, anyways. Don't be a fool, Ned. We don't have any proof, really. It'll just be our word against the word of Jamie and Tywin. And if you're that dumb, just send for Sir Ilan now to have both her heads off. But yes, the Lannisters will try to kill Robert again, and yeah, they'll probably try again soon. Ned is making the Lannisters very anxious, but perhaps Varys and Ned can work together and forestall the and forestall the coming calamity. Just, you know, be sure and be an asshole to be at the small council sessions to prevent further suspicion. Okay, Ned? You could <laughs> you could do that for me. But now Varys has to go, but as he's at the door, Ned asks the most important question in his mind and the reason why he's down here in King's Landing. Varys, How did John Aaron die? I wondered when you would get around to that. Tell me. The tears of lice, they call it. A rare and costly thing, clear and sweet as water, and it leaves no trace. I begged Lord Aaron to use a taster in this very room. I begged him, but he would not hear of it. Only one who was less than a man would even think of such a thing, he told me. (laughs) Okay, George. Yeah. Okay. I'm still, I'm I'm tracking what you're doing here. You slay me more on this a little bit later, but who gave him the poison? Ah, well, you know, probably a friend like that squire who just became a knight who died. You know, the one, right? Ned suddenly feels sick. Sir Hugh wheels within wheels, within wheels. And Ned's head begins hurting. Why? Why now? John Aaron had been hand for 14 years. What was he doing that they tried to kill him? Asking questions, Vara says, before slipping out of the door. And that is Game of Thrones' edited seventh conclusion to the hands tourney. And I think we're going to agree on this. The best Ned chapter yet. Probably my, actually my favorite, my second favorite Ned chapter in all of Game of
1: Thrones. What do you think, Emmett? I completely agree, shockingly enough. uh, (laughs) Definitely my favorite Ned chapter so far in the book. If Sansa 2 kicked off the hands tourney from the perspective of a wide-eyed innocent, Edward Seven brings it to a close by dwelling on the weariness of adulthood. <laughs> From Sir Hugh to Robert to Varys, our boy Ned is constantly facing down the intertwined burdens of aging and disillusionment, the ones that Sansa has just barely begun to face. I've really enjoyed every Ned chapter so far to varying extents, but for me this is head and shoulders above the rest. It yeah. gets at the heart of his relationship with Robert. It features a really intense, cleverly thought-out action scene with the, with the joust between Loras and Gregor. And above all, it reveals much, much more about Varus the Spider, who really becomes the character we know and love in this chapter.
0: Hmm. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think the, you talk about the action scene, and usually in this podcast, I'm the one who's all about these action scenes. But that's actually not what I gravitated to in this chapter. Now, well, I, I have like when I, I have in the past, I've been like, yeah, that's really cool, and I love the fact that we get our only version of Cleganebowl that will ever be canonically on page or on screen. Objectively true. Objectively true. But I really – the thing that really got me about this chapter was more than anything else, it was the conversations between Ned and Robert and, of course, Ned and Varas, uh, if you couldn't tell from my synopsis, that both of those conversations really hit me like an emo- in an emotional place. So it's, it's interesting that you're the guy who's interested into the action. This is the the action one for you. When usually you're like the, the emotions about Ned Stark and Lyanna and all that sort of stuff. And this time I'm into the emotions and you're into the action. So where do we switch places somewhere?
1: Somehow we became each other along the way, sir. <laughs> I think that's, that's inevitable. But no, I mean, I, I, I mean the, the memorable, iconic parts of this chapter are definitely the ones with Robert and Varys. Those conversations are, are really beautifully done and reveal a lot about those two characters and yeah. the way they see Ned and the role they want Ned to play brought up the emotional parts of Ned's character. This chapter, I think, definitely exemplifies the overall tone of his story. The kind of the mournfulness, the, the melancholia, the, the way he thinks about the past and about children. It's, I think that all comes through really strongly in this chapter. It's one of those chapters I remember very distinctly my first time through reading this, my first time through reading that conversation with Robert and feeling my heart kind of break and feeling how wretched this whole situation was. The conversation with Avaris when I'm just on the edge of my seat learning about what he has to say. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's really well done, and it 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 ramps things up in in, in a very important way. I mean, y- you definitely feel like the plot has gotten much more urgent once Varus slips out of that room.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. But circling back to the beginning of this chapter, I think it opens in a really cool way. It opens in a cool way, but I want to say it opens in a cool, sad way as Ned and Sir Barristan are standing over the body of Sir Hugh of the Vale. As we know in the last editor chapter, Ned has a, is, has a growing and burgeoning respect for Sir Barriss and Selmy. And this is a moment where you can see that respect kind of bearing itself out in their relationship and they're forming something of an alliance, which will be, we'll see the full extent in the next Ned chapter. But here you can see that the bond of two warriors standing over not necessarily a dead comrade, but someone who had died in mock battle. It, it kind of – you could see their their bond just kind of building itself here in that kind of shared military context.
1: I agree. Again, it's a gener- generational context. You have two older men. Obviously, Ned is a generation below Barristan, but both of them significantly older than Sir Hugh, both of them having seen kind of the horrors and realities of the world and war in a way that Sir Hugh never got the opportunity to. Yeah. And are both are feeling that horrible sense of fathers burying their sons, that inversion of the natural order that comes and in, comes into play with war, as you say. Yeah. And it's it's that that mournfulness that Ned feels about his own kids and about Rhaegar's kids and about Jon especially, and it's something that comes up again in Barriston's story too, when he's looking at Quentin Martell's corpse for the final time hmm. in Marine a few books down the line and thinks to himself that. You know, not all men are meant to take that risk and he should have just stayed home. It has that same kind of sense of the bitter mourning that you see in this scene with Sir Hugh's body. Another, another young character with, with uh, naive dreams who kind of got sacrificed to the older generation's definition of what makes a hero. And it's, it's, it's very dispiriting. I mean, when you have the, the quote, I stood last vigil for him myself, Sir Barristan Selmy said as they looked down at the body in the back of the cart. He had no one else. A mother in the veil, I am told. Hmm. Like you know, it's 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 Eleanor Rigby. She died, and nobody came. Like yeah. you know, no. As, as Sansa said, no one's here to sing the songs. No one's here to fit Sir Hugh into a legacy, and give this some kind of closure or catharsis. It's just an open wound. And Ned, Ned kind of reflects that. He said, you know, none of us is ever ready for knighthood, for death. It's you know, no matter what challenges you face during life, no matter how even even if you have a story like berriston and Selmy's. It doesn't save you from the abyss that's waiting for you, regardless of what yeah. an impressive hero you are. Ned is covering up the boy and thinks to himself, he reflected bitterly that, that they would tell his mother he had fought to honor the king's hand, Eddard <laughs> Stark, when they <laughs> asked her how, why he died. Like he's He feels responsible. He feels guilty. He says, this was needless. War should not be a game. Yeah. And that's, that's a sentiment you see expressed throughout the series when we get to Catelyn at Renly's camp and she's thinking what madness this tourney is with real war going on. Uh, Joffrey with his tournament of gnats, as we brought up last week, <laughs> there's a sense of real like irresponsibility and superficiality going on, that has that has real consequences that get swept under the rug, and you see how kind of sick and uncomfortable that makes Ned, which makes us like him.
0: It does make us like him, but it also, as much as as much shit as I give Barriss and Selmy as a character in various different mediums, I do think it shows perhaps a little bit of character growth in him, in that. When Ned says none of us are ever ready, and Barrison's like immediately goes to like his head to for knighthood? And then Ned says for death. Like in a dance with dragons, when Barrison is standing over the body of Quentin Martell and he says, Not all men are meant to dance with dragons, it's clear that there is a little bit of character growth, and even if it's not explicit in that last Barristan chapter in Dance, it's clear to me that Barrison has grown a little bit and has seen past Quentin Martell's status as a Prince of Dorne and sees him as a person and sees that there's a real sadness in him dying, and not necessarily because of his status, but because he's he's dead more than anything else. And I think that shows some character growth in who Barristan Selmy is. But I think it's a great point you make, too, about how this is reflective of who Ned Stark is and that melancholy that he has is borne out by his experiences, the major experiences being that he's seen the death of his sister and the death of Rhaegar's children at the end of Robert's rebellion. This, you could feel that emotion flowing through Ned Stark here.
1: Absolutely, and of course, it's also foreshadowing of Ned himself dying. That he's talking about yeah. no one ever being ready for death. I mean that that certainly applies to him as much as it does to anybody else. He he too is going to go home from King's Landing in a body bag, having rode in with uh, you know all sorts of pomp and circumstance, just like Sir Hugh. And uh, it makes me think of, and this might be something I brought up with reference to to Ned before. I don't remember. There's the uh, the Jim Jarmusch movie Dead Man. It's a black and white western from the 90s. Hmm, I never saw uh, it. Johnny Johnny Depp and Crispin Glover, and uh, it's 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 really good. It's one of my favorites. And the I- the, I- the idea of it throughout is that. You know, Johnny Depp, despite being the the Western protagonist, is kind of doomed throughout. And there's never a chance for him to claim his freedom as you're supposed to do in that genre. <laughs> and there's one shot early on when he's walking through the western town, and it's a close up of his face as he's going forward. And you can see in the background like someone building a coffin. <laughs> and they like Johnny Depp stops and stands in the street right as he's like his head is framed by the coffin in the background. <laughs> and that's. That's what this feels like for Ned for me is this moment where he's like, he's talking about this dead kid and about how none of us are ready for death and how it's needless. And you can, you can sense the Grim Reaper chuckling at the irony knowing that he's going to get Ned soon too. Uh, coming, coming back on reread, Ned's, Ned's chapters are really kind of haunted that way in the same way that, uh, Quentin's are. Yes. In Dance when you get, you get to those chapters and you see all the foreshadowing of his death laid out. Yeah,
0: this chapter is especially heavy with a
1: lot of Ned Stark
0: death foreshadowing as we're going to be covering here throughout our our more deeper analysis of it. But before we get into all of that, we're next into after they give care of Sir Hugh's body over to the Silent Sisters, give the armor over to it, order that the armor be sent up to the Vale to his mother so that she can either cash it in for some silver or use it as a memento for her son, either way. The two men, Barristan, Barristan, and Ned, then head over to the King's pavilion. So, the catch, my catch this week, is that as I'm walking over, the notes that Robert's pavilion is described as golden silk. So George is seeming to be intentionally drawing a parallel to the cart that Sansa and Jane Poole and September Dane arrived to the in, and what Robert's own tent is. It's symbolizing Robert's own rose-tinted glasses or golden silk pavilion, if you want to call it that way, in Westeros, as he's attempting to recapture the, the fading glories of his youth and taking down the Targaryen regime.
1: I think that's an excellent point, buddy. I hadn't caught that myself until uh, you pointed it out to me. Yeah, it's that same sense of a golden filter, this these rose-colored glasses that Robert still has, and it's very similar to but different from Sansa's story in that Sansa's perspective is that of a genuine child, a, a naive innocent who hasn't been exposed really to many horrors or, or harsh realities yet. For Robert, it's the perspective of someone trying to deny those horrors and harsh realities and someone who is trying to pretend that they are that age again. Right. That they can be as, as young and innocent as Sansa was. Both of us and Chloe compared uh, the tourney, the hands turning in Sansa 2, to the tourney at Harrenhal yes. last week. and. One gets the sense that the tourney at Harrenhal was that for Robert. It was his equivalent of Saints at the Hand's tourney. Obviously, he was older and a man, but right. it was still that same sense of, oh, this is the best time of my life. This is my prime. This <laughs> is what I'm good for. I remember this forever. And now it's just gone. So this is kind of the – this is the other side of the lens. This is what it looks like after you've been disillusioned and kind of have to keep going. I mean, something we've been talking about with Robert throughout our chapter by chapter – Reviews and in our Patreon episode on Robert Baratheon, yes, It's just Rob, Robert as this kind of aging jock and someone who is is stuck in the past and unable to move forward. <laughs> as strong as that's come through in previous chapters, I think you could argue that this chapter is the ultimate example of it, where that where Martin really brings that to the fore and examines what that mindset is, how destructive it is, how pitiful it is, and where it's led Robert to to be in the present day.
0: Yeah, absolutely, you're right about that. It kind of weird kind of comparison in my mind. It reminds me of. There was an Orioles pitcher back from the 60s and 70s by the name of Jim Palmer, who was one of the greatest pitchers that the Orioles ever had. And I remember when I was a kid, so this is like the early 90s or so, he started showing up to to spring training and trying to like get back into being a pitcher in the rotation with the Baltimore Orioles. But it was clear at this juncture that he was in his 40s, mid to late 40s at that point, that he was not necessarily in his prime anymore. and He just didn't have what it took to – throw a fastball at 98 miles per hour down the middle of the plate or on the outside corner, so to speak. And Robert's the same way in that he's, as, as they're entering into the tent, there are he's, he's yelling at his squires because he's too fat to fit in his armor. And they're trying to put the gorget around his neck and it's popping out of his neck because his neck is too thick and his breastplate is too small because he's not in his prime anymore. He's not the man who won at the Trident. He's just not the same dude anymore. But I do love the introduction of Lancel and Tyrek. Well, I... I, I like it. I'm going to talk about some something I dislike about it later on, but there's something interesting about these two Lancer kids being there and being in the presence of the older generation.
1: Yeah, it is a very generational, a pointedly generational moment. This is when we meet Lancel and Tyrek. Lancel, of course, will prove a considerably significant supporting character as the series goes on in a number of ways. Yes. Tyrek is more of a Chekhov's gun at this point, but the very fact that he keeps being mentioned after he disappears at the riot suggests that... Martin has something significant planned in mind for him. Mm-hmm. So they're background characters, but they're meaningful characters. And I like that they're introduced in this context of, like, as the scene opens, they're framed as young and inexperienced, as, like, you know, clumsy and nervous, and they don't know what they're doing. And Robert is saying, pick it up, put it on, it's so simple, what are you doing? <laughs> but then Ned reveals, no, they're doing their jobs just fine, they're perfectly competent. The problem is not that they are young. The problem is that you're old. Right. Your aging is the problem, Robert. Yeah. That, you know, you've you've gotten past the point in your life where you can just eat and eat all day, and and you know it's not going to have an impact on you. You're in your mid thirties. Everything tells, right? And you've just you've just been ignoring that. And you know, it's not that's not Lancel and Tyrick's fault that they're younger than you and that they they haven't reached this point of age yet. It's it's of course. A direct parallel to what happens with Cersei when she's like, what? I don't understand what these, <laughs> these <laughs> s- seams, these washerwomen and these seamstresses are doing with my dresses. They just don't fit anymore. And right. no one has the nerve to say, Cersei, <laughs> it's cause you're drinking all day. Yes. You're gaining weight. And th- there's just this blindness up where they, Robert is, is all about his image of the perfect masculine warrior god. And Cersei is all about her image as the most beautiful woman in Westeros. And they just can't let go of what aging really means for those self-images. And, you know, having young people there being told they're screw-ups just for being young and experienced really underscores that. That Robert Robert would love to be as young and inexperienced as Lancel and Tyric are. He would love to be that age again. Like Big Bucket Will says, I wish <laughs> I was 6 and 20 again. When I was 6 and 20, I could fight all day and fuck all night. But Big Bucket Will has moved on. He says, what men want does not matter. I'm old. That's the reality. I'm going to live in a world where that's the case.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. It's uh, skipping ahead a little bit to the narrative and we'll we'll circle back. It's funny how Robert makes this explicit when he says he talks about how he never felt so alive when he was winning the throne and and now how dead he feels sitting the Iron Throne. That's who Robert is, as a person that he is caught up in his self-image. And while he later on, like I said, he admits that he's not the same man he was back in the day, it's sad in one sense, but it's also Robert's fault for falling to pieces. I mean, Ned Stark is the same age as Robert and he doesn't have the same proclivities. He doesn't. He's not living a hard life the way that Robert is. And other folks, as we're going to find out, folks like Stannis are, are still able to lead armies into battle and are trim and good shape and still able to, to fight. And, you know, too, if you think about it as well, Jamie Lannister, who is also of a similar age to Robert and Ned, is still – He's maybe not in his total prime, but he's still able to participate in the hands tourney itself and to fight because he's taken care of himself. And that's important that all of Robert's downfalls are as a result of his actions and his his inactions in in a lot of ways and sitting around and drinking all the time as opposed to keeping in shape and keeping the realm in shape for that matter.
1: It's – yeah, he's lost in this image that he once had and he's not willing to do the hard work it is to keep it up and – you know that's something that extends beyond him. It extends to Lancel. I mean, Lancel, as he admits in *The Feast for Crows*, basically destroys his life by trying to live up to the glorious image of Jamie. That's who he wanted to be, and he was willing to chase that image, that golden lion that John says is everything. It looks like everything a king should be. Yeah. And that's Robert is is in the same position. He feels like he's wasted his life living up to the image of being a king, and is now trying to get back at least to when when that was fun, when it was the glory days, and. Ned and Barristan have to point out to him that that's it's just not the case anymore.
0: Yeah, it's not the case, but Ned and Barristan have a point in that it's not kingly for Robert to be rummaging around with all of these young dudes swinging his warhammer in in the in the melee. This leads Robert to wax nostalgic about, ah, well, if only Lyanna were here, she would never forbid me from she would never forbid me from participating in the melee,
1: right? Right, Ned? And Ned has to be like, yeah, would she, though? <laughs> I mean, Robert's being nostalgic for his own youth when he had a life with Lyanna to look forward to instead of with Cersei. But while he plays the boy, uh, Ned is, is, always has to play the adult in the relationship. There's the quote, always though the graver thoughts crept in, which really kind of sums up mm. a lot of Ned's story, I think, especially relative to Robert. And so Ned has to challenge those illusions. The quote is, you never knew Lyanna as I did, Robert, Ned told him. You saw her beauty, but not the iron underneath. She would have told you that you have no business in the melee. So again, Robert was lost in the image. He was lost in what it looked like and what (laughs) his assumptions and his projections. And Ned's telling him that's not the reality. That's not the person. And the same thing with how Robert is aged. He's trying to live up to an image that no longer makes sense for the person he is. So, you know, Ned kind of has to anchor Robert and and let him know these hard truths. That Liana was perhaps the true steel, so to speak, in a way that really Robert's not. And that Robert was never aware of that. So it's, it's not just that he's trying to recapture an era that was gone. It's that he never even understood that era in the first <laughs> place. He didn't even know Liana, let alone, let alone being deprived of a life with her. He didn't understand her in the first place. This, the dream he's living in is not one he's even thought through.
0: Yeah. I think it's a fantastic point for sure.
1: And Robert is just trying to recapture his, you know, the sexy athletic glories as we've talked about of his past. Uh, the king frowned. You are a sour man, Stark. Too long in the north. All the juices have frozen inside you. Well, are still running. He slapped <laughs> his chest to prove it. It's He's overcompensating. You know, he wants to prove that, you know, the, the years haven't changed him, that he's still the man Ned knew from back in the day. You know, and so much of this chapter indicates that he's lying to himself.
0: Yeah. Robert's like that person going through a midlife crisis who buys a Ferrari to prove that he's still young. But he's not young anymore. He's uh, he's he's old. And I, I have to wonder if there's um, – Robert and Stannis had similar conversations before Stannis flew the coop to Dragonstone. And again, as we've talked about in the past, Ned is kind of taking on that Stannis take this shit seriously, dude role to Robert. And the fact that Robert is so caught up in this, this self-conception, this image of him in the past is having – potentially dramatic and drastic consequences for the realm, as we're going to be talking about in a few minutes about the end of this chapter and what Varys reveals about the melee itself, and that Robert is endangering the realm through his quest for glory and his desire to be the man he once was. Like you were saying, that nostalgia, though, runs up against the hard realities of being the king, which Robert is.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, that Robert thinks of the melee as just a good time as a break from being the king. But in fact, there's a sinister plot going on behind the scenes that would have killed him during the melee. So it's, he's not, not at all getting away from being the king. It would exemplify the, the conniving politics and backstepping that goes with being the king. There is no escape. There's no exit for Robert from this life. Yeah. And that's when, that's when Ned and Barriston are trying to communicate to him that he can't just pretend for a day that he's not the king. It just doesn't work that way. The quote is, uh, you are the king. Ned reminded him. I sit on the damn hmm. iron seat when I must. Does that mean I don't have the same hungers as other men? A bit of wine now and again, a girl squealing in bed, the feel of a horse between my legs? Seven hells, Ned, I want to hit someone! <laughs> very primal. Very, very kind of childish, but also relatable. Sure. In, in its fr- frustration. But then, Sir and Selmy spoke up. Your Grace, he said, it is not seeming that the king should ride into the melee. It would not be a fair contest. Who would dare strike you? <laughs> Robert seemed honestly taken aback. As you said in your synopsis, he genuinely didn't think about this. Hmm. Why all of them, damn it? If they can, and the last man left standing will be you, Ned finished. He saw at once that Selmy had hit the mark. The dangers of the melee were only a sabre to Robert, but this touched on his pride. Sir Barristan is right. There's not a man in the Seven Kingdoms who would dare risk your displeasure by hurting you. <laughs> Now, of course, there's an irony there in that (laughs) we know from Cersei's plan that someone would, in fact, be trying to kill him, right? not just hurt him. So, in fact, Ned is completely wrong about that. But the overall point that he and Barriston are making is that you can't go home again. Right. Pass is dead. Robert is king now. He's too fat for his armor, and the rules have changed. The crown makes everyone around him treat him so differently that honest sport... Which is what he's looking for is impossible. Yeah. The game is rigged and that it's rigged in his favor doesn't make him happy in the way that it makes Joffrey happy. It makes it even worse for him because he, what he's looking for is a genuine competition. Part of me wonders, is this why he goes after the boar so insistently later on in the Kingswood? Because yeah. that's honest sport. That's real competition and that makes him feel alive even if he's dying. Yeah. Because this, this, this is just not a life he wants to live.
0: No, I think it's a great point about the boar being a way that Robert tries to overcompensate and you can also see that in other ways that Robert lives. Robert is, you know, drinking a lot. Robert is utilizing sex workers as much as he can. It seems to be overcompensation for the fact that he can't, there's no real, I don't know, what would you call it? There's no real contest anymore. There's no real challenges for Robert and the things that he loved being challenged on before. There's nothing challenging his masculinity at at this, at this nature, at this juncture in the story. And there never will be again for Robert because he's the king and he's the king for life. What's great though about that one, about Barrison and Ned's conversation is I think, I think it's, I think it's terrific. The fact that, uh, that Ned is able to pick up on what Barrison is telling. Robert so quickly and is able to kind of work alongside of Yeah, uh, that's great. Alongside of Barristan without, you know, them like talking about it beforehand. Like it it seems like Ned is doing, doing some improvisation really well. I think it's fantastic. But it's also a really great Barristan character moment here too, which goes to show that Barristan's willingness to challenge Robert's royal authority only goes so far. And the quote is, the king rose to his feet, his face flushed. Are you telling me those prancing cravens will let me win? For a certainty, Ned said, and Sir Barristan bowed his head in silent accord. And this really helps set the stage for the next Ned chapter, where Barristan joins Ned in counseling Robert against sending hard knives after Viserys and Daenerys Targaryen. But where Ned resigns his handship in moral, in moral outrage over Robert's final decision, Barristan again kind of bows his head and remains Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Varys kind of has the right of it later on in this chapter where he says that Barristan loves his honor an honor that's bestowed on him by his white cloak and his position as the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. And that's something Barristan will never give up until he's finally forced out of the position by Joffrey at the end of A Game of Thrones. So, Barristan and Ned work together well in this juncture in the story, and they do find themselves in an alliance in the next Ned chapter. But that alliance only goes so far, where it comes to the point where Barristan will have to give up his honor, will have to seemingly give up his white cloak... If push came to shove, he's not going to turn in his white cloak the same way that Ned is going to turn in his handpin to Robert. That's just a – I think it's a great moment that kind of helps set up Barristan as a character.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I think Barristan, while he's an admirable guy in a lot of ways, is ultimately too in love with the system and feels too invested in it to really walk away. Whereas Ned ultimately proves he cares more about his values than he does the system he's embedded in, which is part of what makes us love Ned Stark. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's willing to tell these hard truths to Robert, and whereas Berestan is willing to only imply them, right. uh, one, one one wonders if that's a uh, a holdover from Eris's day when you really, I imagine, didn't want to directly say anything critical of the king. Right. This cuts Robert really deeply to be told not just that he can't participate in the melee, but why he shouldn't, because it's not going to be a fair fight, because they're just going to let him win. That really hurts. It yeah. makes him makes him angry at first. Uh, for a moment, Robert was so angry he could not speak. He strode across the tent, whirled, strode back, his face dark and angry. He snatched up his breastplate from the ground and threw it at Berist Selmy in a wordless fury. Selmy dodged. Get out, the king said then, coldly. Get out before I kill you. <laughs> but not just the anger, it also induces just this intense existential despair about who he is and the, the, the his... His role and the trap it feels like closing around him. Damn you, Ned Stark. You and Jon Arryn. I loved you both. What have you done to me? You were the one who should have been king. You were Jon. Like, again, what have you done to me? Like, it's this, this trick that was played on him. <laughs> this, this, like, someone led him with a series of Reese's pieces under a box and then pulled the stick away. Like, that's what Robert feels like. That he was lied to, basically. And, and led into a pit of despair from which he can't can't escape that yeah he's the he's the king, and everyone has to be nice to him, but nothing is genuine, and nothing is meaningful and you know only only now is he appreciating how how important danger was to his life and genuine risks and real obstacles and struggle that only now is Robert realizing how important all those were to being happy yeah and now that now that they're gone, just getting everything you want all the time that might make someone like Joffrey happy, but it's not making Robert happy.
0: it's not making him happy, but Ned. Rightfully tells Robert, look, we didn't have much of an option at the end of Robert's Rebellion. You had to be the king. You had the better bloodline. And there's a real politique that's going on here that you need to be aware of, that we can't just simply replace heirs with John Arryn or myself. We don't have any ability to make a paper shield, if you want to call it that, a paper shield that will allow Westeros to invest themselves in your kingship. Because the Targaryens were kings for nearly 300 years before. You took the Iron Throne before we took the Iron Throne. And the fact that you have to be the king, yeah, it sucks. But that was the way of it. And you yourself declared yourself the king at just before the Battle of the Tridents we talked about in a Robert Baratheon episode. But yeah, it's a similar sentiment that Ned expresses at the beginning of this chapter, though.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. It's very similar to what Ned is talking about with Sir Hugh that, you know, war should not be a game. That these, this, this vision that Robert is talking about that he was lost in and that ultimately disappointed him. That, that's very similar to how Sir Hugh kind of invested himself in this chivalric image of knighthood that ultimately ended him with him bleeding out on the tourney field. it's It's the same, but also, I guess it's kind of inverted in a way where Robert wants the war back. whereas Sir Hugh was invested in the game in the performance and you know the the sun catching your banners in the wind. Robert wants the real deal. He wants the fight. He, he doesn't want the the image anymore. He doesn't want just the fake glory of the tourney, but all he's left with is the game. All right. he's left with is kind of the conniving and manipulating and uh, none of that satisfies him. And he, he just kind of wants out. Uh, it's this, the same themes of youth and innocence despoiled that we were talking about earlier with the, the scene at, with Sir Hugh's body in the cart. Uh, Robert argues that, yeah, the crown is basically a, a burden for which he wasn't ready and a curse that has slowly destroyed everything that was good in him. And there's some hmm. just really, really wretched, heartbreaking lines in that regard. Uh, look at me, Ned. Look at what kinging has done to me. God's too fat for my armor. How did it ever come to this? Or the, the one uh, you alluded to earlier. I swear to you, I was never so alive as when I was winning this throne, nor so dead as now that I've won it. Hmm. So he's questioning what, what good was any of that? That, right. that cause to which we devoted ourselves, the defining era of our youth. What what did it mean if this is where it led us? You can see Ned and Robert dwelling on that in a kind of sad, passive way in this chapter, and then a really angry, active way when we get to Ned's next chapter. And Ned is asking yeah. him, "What did we fight for, if not to put an end to the murder of children?" And Robert replies, "To put an end to Targaryens," which, of course, is a very <laughs> a very different conception. But we'll talk about that more at length when we get to Edward Eight.
0: Yes, yes, it's clear that at this juncture for Robert. That he still has that anger for Rhaegar Targaryen and what Rhaegar took from him in the form of Lyanna Stark. At the same time, you can se- you can get you get the real sense that he's forgotten why they were fighting. It wasn't fighting for fighting's sake, and it wasn't just a glorious fight. There was real stakes for people like Robert and for people like Ned. Robert seemingly has forgotten that in the years that he's been sitting the Iron Throne. Maybe he recaptured some of it at the Greyjoy Rebellion. But in the years since that, even that event, which has been about nine years at this juncture in the story, he's, he's not happy by it. He seems to have forgotten the reasons for going to war. There wasn't just a glorious struggle where Robert was swinging his war hammer from the Vale to the Stormlands to the Riverlands to King's Landing. There were real consequences and there was real danger involved in it. But it's funny how that sentiment that Robert has about kingship and how terrible it is is, re- is a repeated motif by many, many king figures in the story.
1: Yeah, that sense of disillusionment with the crown and the crown being more a target on your back than a stepping stone to happiness. I mean, the first, arguably the first major death in the series is Viserys Targaryen. A, yes. a king in the action of being quote-unquote crowned by Drogo. I mean, hmm. molten gold being poured in his head, but Drogo ironically calls it a crown. So that, that alone sets up where these characters are going. That, yes. You know, in this moment of royal apotheosis is actually a horrifying, humiliating death for Viserys and that's something as you say that we see reflected across the series when we get to a storm of swords we see uh, many different characters expressing the same kind of sentiments that robert is expressing here rob sums it up perfectly in a storm of swords Catelyn 3 god's be good why would any man ever want to be a king hmm. and he's is that a heart-rending monologue when he's talking about oh when they were crowning me i remember i promising myself how good it was going to be and how i was going to do the right thing and now it's just gotten so confused or with Stannis elsewhere in that book, and he's, he's talking to Davos. Have you ever seen the Iron Throne? The barbs along the back, the ribbons of twisted steel, the jagged ends of swords and knives all tangled up and melted? It is not a comfortable seat, sir. Aeris cut himself so often men took to calling him King Scab, and Magor the Cruel was murdered in that chair. By that chair, to hear some tell it. It is not a seat where a man can sit at ease. Ofttimes I wonder why my brothers wanted it so desperately. That's from A Storm of Swords, Davos 4. And even more pointedly, uh, in the next Davos chapter of Storm of Swords, Davos 5, quote from Stannis, I saw a king, a crown of fire on his brows burning, burning Davos. His own crown consumed his flesh and turned him into ash. Do you think I need Melisandre to tell me what that means? Or you? Hmm. And that's that's the same idea that Robert is expressing here. The crown destroyed me. The crown ruined my life. The crown prevented me from being happy. And now the crown has poisoned the one thing I thought I had left, which was... Getting to hit someone, I can't even do that anymore. <laughs> Awful. Now there's a there's a limit to how sympathetic one should feel for Robert here. As we've said, a lot of this is his own fault. He's still like in the position where he never has to worry about where his next meal is coming from. Sure. Like obviously, Robert's knife is not Robert's life is not actually bad, but the the sentiment being expressed is that again, he feels like he was deceived. He feels like the songs lied to him. To borrow a line from Littlefinger. And now he's he was gonna get Liana in the realm, and he's been left alone with Cersei in an iron chair. Hmm. And that's it's it's disillusionment. And Ned has gone through that same disillusionment, but it has kind of held on to some values in a way that Robert really hasn't.
0: That chair has disillusioned him and has made him a unhappy man and but an unhappy man that a lot of his, a lot of his unhappiness is self induced. It's not external, it's a lot of his internal for him. But the, there is um, there is one reason why Robert doesn't just give up the crown and go off and and go off fighting elsewhere, and that's his son Joffrey.
1: Yeah, for me, that's probably the the heart of this whole conversation. Maybe the heart of Robert's character is when he confesses that uh, he actually doesn't want to be here. That he's thought about giving it all up and has so convinced himself that it was all for nothing. He's willing to just drop it like a hat. He says, "Let me tell yeah. you a secret, Ned." More than once I've dreamed of giving up the crown. Take ship for the free cities with my horse and my hammer. Spend my time warring and whoring. That's what I was made for. And this line is devastating. The sellsword king, how the singers would love me. That's what he wants back. He wants back the songs. Yeah. He wants back the the people who sing about him and him being able to believe in those songs. Now I'm sure every time Robert hears a song about Robert's rebellion, he hates it. He knows what it led to. It led to Lyanna dying and him being left alone, a fat old man with Cersei. He wants new songs. He wants songs he can believe in again and songs he can live out. He wants to revive that part of him. And he is in his brain. That part of him is incompatible with the crown. And like you say, the only thing that stops him from abdicating, which you know, that's a huge step, abdicating a crown. <laughs> like you don't, you don't do that for nothing. And Robert is doing it out of boredom and ennui, which is, is quite a radical step to take. And he says the only reason he's not doing it. Is the thought of what would happen if he did. That it would be Joffrey on the throne with Cersei whispering in his ear. Hmm. Which you know, on, on the one <laughs> hand, on the one hand, that makes Rob that's one of Robert's more sympathetic moments in that, first of all, you understand that he's not ambitious or power hungry, that he doesn't care about being king for the sake of being king, that he is willing to give all that up. And it's sympathetic in that. This is the closest Robert gets, arguably, to articulating a sense of duty as being a king. <laughs> yeah. But the irony is, is that sense of duty is, I hate this job, but I'm going to keep it because my air is even worse. So it's <laughs> it's kind of a sense of duty, but it's also, also an admission that everything has gone to shit on his watch.
0: Yeah. It, he does have that duty, and he does identify the problem with his realm and that he's got... A heir that is not a good person so far. And, you know, he points out specifically that, that Ned doesn't know Joffrey the way that he knows him. And that, sure, Ned has seen Joffrey on the trident, but Robert is implying that there's a potential for Joffrey being even worse than all of that. But the problem for Robert is that he's really only going halfway. Sure, he's identifying that he's got a serious issue on his hands with his heir, but he doesn't have a plan of action to address it. Something to try and mold Joffrey. Exactly. Into someone worthy of inheriting the Iron Throne. You know, he talks about in this chapter about how John Aaron had despaired of him, but, you know, he turned out to be an okay person, which I guess is kind of an arguable point, in my opinion. You get the sense in the past that John Aaron went out of his way to try and mentor Ned and Robert into becoming the men that they became. And especially, I think, most importantly in, in their military aspects, is. Robert is going to be someone who is able to lead men into battle. And that seems like something that Jon Aaron probably foisted onto Robert. But what's Robert's plan to try and help Joffrey become someone worthy of inheriting the Iron Throne? None. There's no plan. There's nothing here. Now, there's a potential here that he, – that Joffrey could have been fostered somewhere, um, somewhere worth pursuing. He could have sent Joffrey to Stannis or sent him to Robert's grandparents, the Estermonts, or somewhere where the kid will be away from Cersei and definitely away from Tywin too, for that matter. But I think maybe because both Robert and Ned had a shared experience in being fostered and saw some of the shortfalls in that and have a lot of trauma associated with that, Ned especially, Robert to a lesser extent – Neither of them even think of this as a potential solution to the issue of Robert's heir. And I think there has to be some sort of, you know, you identify a problem, right? Then you come up with a solution or come up with a set of solutions and identify the best way forward. And that's the problem. The the issue here is that Robert stops only halfway and doesn't go forward with how he's going to make Joffrey into someone who is going to be a good king or at least as good as Robert is.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Robert is... Knows the problem, but is choosing to, you know, drink the problems away, fuck the problems away, just fight the problems yeah. away, just ignore it, and and try to live in the past. The, the closest he comes to dealing with it is to make Ned the hand, because in his head, Ned is the person who's always right, and who tells him what the right thing to do is, and will help him solve his problems. And that often come, boils down to Robert just delegating and handing <laughs> all the responsibility to Ned, as we've seen in the, in the King's Landing chapter so far. That does also represent the best in Robert, and there is a sense you get at the end of this scene that their relationship is a genuine potential foundation for a better Robert Baratheon. If the story had gone differently, that when Robert says, uh, quote, I'm still young, and now that you're here with me, things will be different. We'll make hmm. this a reign to sing of in Dandal Lannisters to Seven Hells. Again, it's <laughs> the song. Again, Robert needs to be sung of, but now he's saying... Earlier, he was saying, I'm going to be a sellsword king, because that's what the singers will love. I'm going to abandon my responsibilities and go off and war and whore and that's what—they'll make ballads about that. But now he's saying, no, I can be a good enough king that they'll make songs about that. He's still stuck in the singer's mindset. Yeah. But at least, at least with this occasion, he's saying that what he wants to be sung of is as a good king, and that he thinks Ned will help him there. And so— I definitely, Robert definitely doesn't fulfill his responsibilities with this admission about Joffrey. It doesn't make it okay. But emotionally speaking, it reminds me of the, the Pixar movie Inside Out from a few years ago, which mm-hmm. had the, the great revealing point that in order to really embrace your joy, you need to confront your sadness and deal with it head on, honestly, and work through it before you can really yeah. be happy.
0: Yeah. He really does confront it here. And he shows some character growth between the beginning of this conversation with Ned and Barriston and to the point where he's now alone with Ned and he's able to be like yeah we're we're just going to do better now we'll uh we'll, we'll work on it together and we'll we'll come up with a better plan going forward and that'll be the way that the singers will finally sing of us about the reign of good king robert or something like that. So yeah, it's 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 great, you know. It's a great character moment for Robert, but at the same time it's also <laughs> it's also not something that's fulfilled in the narrative because you know in the very next in that chapter, we get back to Bad King Robert. It's not the man that songs are going to be sung of. It's going to be the guy who tries to order the death of two kids in Essos.
1: Oh, yeah. It's very much more like an existential inner potential victory than it is an actualized right. real world victory. But it gets at what Varys says later in this chapter, what Cersei said back at Winterfell, which is that Robert's despair and inertia are very valuable to Cersei because they prevent him from changing things up. They prevent him from... Stopping her from doing whatever she wants. And Ned is the one who has the potential to get Robert off of his ass. (laughs) And and like Robert says, damn the Lannisters to seven hells. Cersei doesn't want anyone who makes Robert thinking about damning the Lannisters to seven hells. (laughs) She does not want anyone inspiring him to that degree. And while that dynamic between Ned and Robert is, of course, also rooted in nostalgia for their youth, the big topic of this chapter... It's framed here in a much more positive light than Robert's equally nostalgic desire to fight. If Robert's desire to fight in the melee was bad nostalgia, shallow, arrogant, blind nostalgia, his, his love for Ned and their shared bond and their shared memories, that's the good kind of nostalgia, the kind that honors your best self and brings it out of you. Yes. The quote is, the, the king's melancholy melted away with the morning mist. Nice, nice alliteration there on mm-hmm. George's part. And before long, Robert was eating an orange and a waxing fawn about a morning at the Erie when they had been boys. Hey, given John a barrel of oranges, remember? Only the things had gone rotten, so I flung mine across the table and hit Dax right in the nose. You remember, Redfort's pox-faced squire? He tossed one back at me, and before John could so much as fart, there were oranges flying across the high hall in every direction. He <laughs> laughed uproariously, and even Ned smiled, remembering. I love this, this part here. This was the boy he had grown up with, he thought. This was the Robert Baratheon he'd known and loved. If he could prove that the Lannisters were behind the attack on Bran, prove that they had murdered Jon Arryn, this man would listen. Then Cersei would fall and the Kingslayer with her, <laughs> and if Lord Tywin dared rouse the West, Robert would smash him as he had smashed Rhaegar Targaryen on the Trident. He could see it all so clearly. It's a, it's a very sweet sentiment, obviously made bittersweet on reread because we know that none of that came to pass. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, oops. Yeah, oops, right? And, you know, trope alert... Listen up, you fancy protagonist. If you want your plans to come (laughs) to pass, don't ever, not once ever, ever think about your plans in detail. Just don't do it. They're just never going to come to pass. Like, just don't think about how glorious it's going to be that Robert will rise up and that he'll believe that he'll figure out who murdered John Arryn and the proof will be there. And Cersei would fall and Jaime would also fall. And Lord Tywin would also fall in battle because Robert would smash him in with his war hammer. Don't do that, man. Just, you know, just think more general thoughts about how things will go better from here on. I'll leave it ambiguous because that's the only way if you're a fantasy protagonist that your plans are actually going to see fruition in the narrative.
1: Yeah, as soon as you read that, you're like, uh-oh, Ned's in trouble. As soon as you read <laughs> this, this wistful dream about what might happen. But I think it's interesting that it's this warm emotional connection, this brotherly bond rooted in their childhood. This is what convinces Ned that Robert will listen to him about the Lannisters, because that was in significant doubt earlier in the book. Uh, Edward IV ended with Ned uh, wondering to himself, you know, oh, is Robert the man I remember? Is he going to listen to me? Can I trust him with the information I've learned? But at the end of this chapter, he's like, yes, Robert will listen to me if I figure out the, if I get the evidence I need, Robert will listen if I go to him. Yes. That's that's the, the conclusion Ned reaches, but... On the other hand, Stannis is so convinced that Robert would never listen to him, wouldn't believe him if Stannis went to Robert with the information about the twin cysts, and that's because they don't have that bond, this brotherly right. bond that, that Robert is talking about, these shared moments of warmth and community connection, that never developed between Stannis and Robert. So, of course, Stannis doesn't think that Robert would trust him.
0: No, and, and Stannis is right that Robert would not listen to him. And Stannis, as a result, he attempts to figure out the conspiracy behind Cersei's children, with John Aaron, who is someone that that Robert would listen to. And as as Stannis says in A Clash of Kings, Catelyn III, that he did not bring his suspicions to Robert directly. He brought them to John Aaron because he figured that John Aaron would be able to convince Robert if it ever came to that point that the suspicions proved true. Of course, the suspicions were true, but John Aaron died before John Aaron could bring his suspicions to Robert himself. So that's the kind of the conclusion of the Ned Robert conversation that moment but we still have the hands tourney to conclude and we get some really cool moments here at the end, the conclusion of the Joust and the melee and the archery competition.
1: Yes indeed. So we go back to the the tourney grounds this time Ned accompanies Sansa. Uh, and we get a cute little fangirl moment from her when it's Sandor up against Jamie. And uh, she's she says I knew the Hound would win after after Sandor <laughs> after Sandor beats Jamie. Uh, which I like. It shows that that conversation from the previous night really had an impact on her. Uh, yeah, obviously, because Sansa two ends with the Sansa Sandor conversation. Like, it doesn't end with Sansa going to her bedchamber and thinking about the conversation. So we didn't really get any reaction from her. Yeah. So this this is a nice little way of Martin letting us know, hey, she's still thinking about it. She's she's she is if she's not in love with him at this point, but she is like impressed by him and thinks <laughs> she thinks positively of him because. I knew the Hound would win, what, because of his skill? You, you know, you don't know anything about the Hound as a jouster. You thought the Hound would win just because you're you're invested in him now. He's your favorite of the right. boy band in, <laughs> in this crew of jousters. The Hound is now your favorite, which is a nice little subtle touch I like from Martin there.
0: Do you think it actually was like a fangirl moment or was it more like Sansa being like kind of more sullen in kind of a Ned Stark way of after having that conversation with Sandor and seeing his ferocity and being like, I I knew the hound would win, as opposed to Jamie Lannister, who embodies that kind of image of chivalry. Not so. not as much as Loris so we're gonna talk about here momentarily, but does have more of that he has the Sir in front of his name and he's wearing the golden armor. And do you think it's more Sansa it's, you, you you think it's fangirl? I I'm not sure if it's fangirl as opposed to like Sansa kind of resigning herself to the fact that Sandor is a fierce warrior and he demonstrates that in that conversation he has with Sansa the night previous
1: it's entirely possible but Jamie's also a fierce warrior and there's the line about not biting the hand that feeds you that goes on back and forth between Littlefinger and Renly and I kind of think I see Sansa's line as a defiance of that almost that she knows how angry Sandor is about this system and yeah. everyone who is above him so maybe she thinks that anger or anger powered him on but yeah it's just a quick moment they move on from it so it's 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 difficult to establish motivation there for sure. Because this, the central focus in this scene is not on Sansa. It's not on Sandor. It is on Sandor's brother, Gregor Clegane, Ooh. the mountain, and his legend. Who was yes. uh, really, really established in this chapter, in the previous chapter, Sansa 2. He's not even mentioned before before then. But after this chapter, you really you really know all you need to know about Gregor. Uh, he's, he's not one of those villains who is given depth and given kind of emotional resonance the way Tywin sometimes is, the way uh, Renley arguably is when you get to Laura saying, like, when the sun has set, no candle can replace it. No one right. says anything like that about Gregor Clegane. No. Uh, he, he serves a very specific purpose, which is we got into last time, is that he's so bluntly horrifying, he's so one-dimensional that it, it's a condemnation of the system that the system has accepted him. The fact that this man is a knight and that he is given honor and affirmation by, by important people around him ...is just obscene. And I think we can we can see that when Ned is describing his backstory. And, you know, he, Ned doesn't put much stock in gossip, but he says even the stories about Gregor freak even him out. Yeah. Um, that you know he was... Uh, it had been Gregor who had dashed the skull of the infant prince Egan Targaryen against a wall... ...and that afterward he had raped the mother of the Dornish princess alia before mm. putting her to the sword. He was soon to be married for the third time and one heard dark whisperings about the deaths of his first two wives... It was said that his keep was a grim place where servants disappeared unaccountably and even the dogs were afraid to enter the hall. Like, this is over-the-top, directly Bluebeard-esque villainy. Like, all the wives (laughs) vanishing, the servants are vanishing. It's like a a nightmare haunted castle. And then there had been a sister who had died young under queer circumstances and the fire that had disfigured his brother and the hunting accident that had killed their father. I like the implication that the attempt by Papa Claglane to uh cover up what had happened to Sandor, saying that it like his betting had caught fire. I like the implication that this didn't entirely work. Yeah. That there are whisperings that Gregor was involved with what happened to Sandor given the mysterious deaths elsewhere in the family. And that, of course, that as soon as Gregor inherited the keep, Sandor split town, uh, to take direct service with the Lannisters and, and never went back. So yeah, you get you get this sense of young Gregor as, the, as this monster who really tainted Robert's Rebellion and just inflicted this horrible, sick act of, of rape and murder at the very end, uh, which, of course, fits perfectly in this chapter because it's coming right after a scene in which we learn that Robert has lost his mojo. So, of course, now we see Gregor, this character who represents everything that was, you know, tainted and horrible and corrupt in Robert's Rebellion. The, the kind of, this is, Robert feels like he's decayed, and what could, who could exemplify that better than the man who finished off Robert's rebellion with child murder and rape.
0: Yeah, and you know as we talked about in John four, as when Samuel Tarley was recounting a story about Randall Tarley, and this is going to be something a theme. This is going to be a theme that's going to be repeated throughout. If people are going, are quote unquote going out on a hunt, bad things are going to befall the people. The people that do that. You have Robert who later dies in a, or is mortally wounded in a, in a hunt. Again, you have Randall Tarley threatening to murder his own son in a hunt and claim it was an accident. And here you get Gregor Clegane, who is said to have, who is suspected of murdering his father under the auspices of, of a hunt itself. So yeah, I, I think it's also a great point that you make that Gregor Cleggain is embodying the worst, the darkest parts of Robert's rebellion. And he is the taint as well as Time and Lannister for that matter. Uh, that really darkened everything of darkened the kind of glorious revolution that was a just and good thing to kind of re- to forcibly end the the, the tyranny of of, of eras the second targaryen but of course it shrouded it in terrible optics and terrible and and a terrible evil deed at the very end of it but you know with everything in george's world there's always a contrast to that, and that contrast is found in the character of Loras Tyrell, the avatar of chivalry.
1: Absolutely. If if Gregor is, is there to embody like that which high lords hide behind curtains, like that Gregor does Tywin's dirty work so Tywin doesn't have to dirty his hands and he can keep his glorious golden image. Yeah. Uh, the, the very fact that Gregor is described as having been even then distinguished by his size and implacable ferocity, that suggests that Tywin was full of shit when he told Tyrion later on that he had no idea what he had in Gregor Clegane at the time, if he was already distinguished by his size and ferocity. Like, there's there's no other reason to send in this new-made knight who's the son of a random stable stable house, up, up jump stable hand on your lands. There's no other reason to send Gregor in unless you know what he is. Correct. But yeah... Martin juxtaposes him in this scene very effectively with Loras Tyrell, the avatar of chivalry, who's given the opposite intro to this kind of crude, brutish stone mountain. By contrast, quote, When the knight of flowers made his entrance, a murmur ran through the crowd, and he heard Sansa's fervent whisper, Oh, he's so beautiful. Which, again, I just love as a pure fangirl moment. It's it's lovely. Sir Loras Tyrell was slender as a reed, dressed in a suit of fabulous silver armor, polished to a blinding sheen, and filigreed, with twining black vines and tiny blue forget-me-nots. The commons realized in the same instant as Ned that the blue of the flowers came from sapphires. A gasp went up from a thousand throats. Across the boy's shoulders, his cloak hung heavy. It was woven of forget-me-nots, real ones, hundreds of fresh blooms sewn to a heavy woolen cape. So that's, that's just like so gorgeous and intricate that it reaches the point of... Parody, basically, yeah. where it's it's so over the top that you start to wonder if it, if it's as trustworthy as Tywin's image, if if it's not yeah. just hiding up the same kind of brutality underneath a, a pretty cloak. And of course, Loras will go on to win his duel with Gregor not through being the most chivalrous and honorable of knights, but through a rather dirty, underhanded trick uh, mm-hmm. with with the horses having taking this pretty young mare in heat and kind of dangling her before Robert's warhorse, which, as you note, Berriston is, is against because, of course, he's in the ultimate by-the-book <laughs> good cop. And Renly smiles and grins and twenty a small honor in it, yes, but 20,000 gold. And, of course, Renly approves because what Loris's trick is basically identical to Loris and Renly's plan for Robert. It's you dangle a pretty young mare, namely Marjorie, in front of a huge spirited warhorse, namely Robert. And you convince him to, to dump his rider, who is Gregor, but his, Gregor represents, of course, the Lannisters, since he's their bannerman. And, uh, I think that's a wonderful little touch that you can see uh, Loras and Riley kind of recreate their plan, uh, on the, on the tourney grounds in, in the jousting format. But this is, this is what they intend to do to Robert, and they, there's not much honor in it, but there is a bunch of gold. And of course, you know, the, the Lannisters will go on to kill Robert, who is, who is the stallion in this metaphor, and similarly, Gregor, uh, promptly kills his horse uh, hmm. for the crime for the crime of uh, being attracted to Loras's horse, and when he when he beheads that horse with a single blow, this is the equivalent of that moment at the tourney of Harrenhal when uh, all the smiles died, hmm. as Martin Martin describes it in this chapter. Cheers turned to shrieks in the heartbeat, and uh, the image of chivalry is dissolving in front of everyone, and you're seeing just brute violence, which is what Sandor argues throughout the series that you know. A knight is a sword, and you can dress up the sword with all sorts of bows and banners, but, you know, a knight is for killing. Hmm. And you can kind of see that being exposed here, that underneath all the sapphires and the cheers from the commons, Gregor and Loris are hired swords, functionally speaking. Right. And that really, loris having bent the rules, Gregor just outright shatters it by trying to kill Loris in front of everybody. As with him killing Sir Hugh, this is where the, the war game becomes war, and the... Again, the themes of youth and innocence falling away, I think, are very much present.
0: hmm Absolutely, for sure. But then we get clicking ball, get hype,
1: right? Is that what they say? <laughs> Air-hor- air-horn, airhorn, airhorn, airhorn. <laughs> exactly. It's 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 interesting to note how a potential Gregor Sandor duel has been built up as a breathlessly as a possible thing to happen in the final books when it's actually already Happened, right? <laughs> we saw it in the first book. It's it's an intensely uh, dramatic moment. This is the other, yeah, the exciting action scene bit I was talking about earlier. Uh, quote, but as Gregor lifted his sword for the killing blow, a rasping voice warned, "Leave him be," and a steel clan hand wrenched him away from the boy. <laughs> the mountain pivoted in wordless fury, swinging his long sword in the killing arc with all his massive strength behind it. But the hound caught the blow and turned it. And for what seemed an eternity, the two brothers stood hammering each other as a dazed Loras Terrell was helped to safety. And this is the key part. Thrice Ned saw Sir Gregor aim savage blows at the hound's head helmet. Yet not once did Sandor send a cut at his brother's unprotected face. Hmm. Which is really interesting, because Sandor absolutely despises Gregor and wants him dead for very justifiable reasons. The fact that he's stepping in to defend Loras from Gregor and is not even taking the opportunity to try to cut Gregor down which you would probably get away with in this moment yeah uh, like legally socially speaking Uh, but this suggests at some level that Sandor has internalized what Sansa meant by calling Gregor no true knight in the previous chapter even though Sandor mocked it at the time the fact that he's standing in to protect Loras who is of course the image of idealized knighthood that Sansa believes in that Sandor used to believe in uh, that he is refusing to take the killing blow at Gregor when he could he's acting purely defensively and Hmm. not offensively uh maybe that means he's he cares more in this moment about being a true knight than he does his revenge and to be perfectly clear that is not to say that gregor does not <laughs> richly deserve to be killed especially by sandor he does yes. i would i have zero moral qualms with sandor shoving his sword into gregor's face i do think however that sandor himself might be happier and healthier if he found something to live for besides that so that's yes. what ma- that's what makes this scene kind of optimistic for me
0: do you think maybe the reason why Sander didn't go for Gregor's face is that trauma that Sander has about his own face being burned? You think that there is an intentional paralleling with the story that's that Sander told Sansa the night previous about his face being burned? But yet when he's given the chance, is there some sort of like trauma that's preventing him? And and I think I really like the point you're making that that Sander is embodying true knighthood in occupying a wholly defensive role in preventing Gregor from killing, I, I guess an innocent, right? I guess you can call Loris an innocent at this juncture in the story. He hasn't murdered Roper Royce yet or anything like that. Uh, but I also think that there's a potential here that maybe Sander's like, maybe Sander has a bit of empathy, even though his brother was willing, brutally burned his face, that Sander is, is not willing to do the same for his own blood, even though Gregor is a total brute and he completely and utterly destroys, utterly deserves that feat. I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot going on in that, in this small little passage.
1: I think that's a fair point. I think you can see when Sandor uh, catches on fire at the Hollow Hill and starts just crying like a baby, as we brought up in Sansa, as Chloe brought up in Sansa too, that, you know, injuries related to his tr- childhood injury kind of bring him back to that state. Yeah. And so he he doesn't necessarily want to inflict those upon anyone else even Gregor. Which yeah, I think that's definitely part of it that he doesn't the, the notion of doing to another face what was done to his face is instinctively repulsive to him, but even that is, you know, that speaks well of him that he's not he's not going purely for an eye for an eye of revenge. Uh that he wants what he wants more than anything really is justice. Yeah. As, I mean that's why that's why he brought up not just that Gregor inflicted this horrible damage to him, but that he was knighted afterwards, and what yeah. an injustice that is. Yeah, as well as as well as the desire for straight up revenge, I think you can see a desire for a better system going on in Sander Clegane's heart. That he wants he wants the world to operate better, and I think for a moment here he's acting in the, in that vein. Again, he he wins the tournament loris comes out and says i owe you my life the day is yours and he wins the love of the commons and it's you know he's not exactly blowing kisses to the crowd (laughs) but he still says i am no sir but for for once you know sandor has behaved like a hero out of the songs and i think i think he likes the taste of it because there's certain actions he does later on in clash and storm that's are are along the same lines
0: yeah i think i think you make a great point and I do like that fact that that Sandor is is internalizing some of the dialogue that he had with Sansa the night previous, and I do think that when Sansa said about Gregor that he was no true knight, that even though Sandor threw his head back and roared in bitter laughter, that he was he took something out of that. And I think it's cool that you have that moment between Sansa and Sa- Sansa and Sandor, then and then taking a role in. What Sander does the next day when he has the opportunity to kill Gregor, but he doesn't because Sander may be a true knight. He might not have the certain front of his name, but he has the, the qualities of a true knight, as other characters like Brienne will have in, in A Feast for Crows.
1: Yes, indeed. Wrapping up our discussion of the tourney itself, we get the uh, archery tournament in the melee. Both of them won by future members of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Hmm. Angai wins the archery tournament. Ned reaches out to offer him a position with the Hand's Guard, which I like. That's an attempt, at some level, to turn the kind of shallow windfalls of the tourney into genuine social mobility for Angai, giving him a leg up. But the allure of wine and women is too strong for Angai, <laughs> uh, which, which is interesting. L- later on, he develops a political ideology of his own, but for right now, he's just kind of lost in the in the the bread and circuses of the Hand's tourney, which is very representative, I think.
0: Yeah, it's a. Uh, it- Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the, the Archer Tournament he wins 10,000 golden dragons, right?
1: I believe so, yes.
0: How in the world does he spend 10,000 golden dragons in the next like year? He spends all of it, if I'm not mistaken, right? On wine and women. Like, how, I, it, it's it seems seemingly good. It's crazy if you if you think about the amount of money he spent on on alcohol and on and on on sex workers, on sex workers, I guess, but
1: you know, on. On roast duck. He had roast duck every day. That adds up.
0: I, I guess it does in, in in the long term here, but <laughs> I think that some people have done some economic analysis of like how much a golden dragon is worth, and people have kind of scratched their heads and been like, Wait, this doesn't make sense. That's that's a lot of money. That's like millions of dollars in, in actual money now. But I guess you can maybe maybe there's there's a analogy to I don't know if you've 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 probably seen this, but folks who win like the lottery, who
1: Oh sure,
0: they'll spend all of their money for the first five years. Yeah, maybe that's what George is going for here in that. But yeah, and you talk about Angai winning the Arch Determine. Thoros Amir, who becomes a major character in A Storm of Swords, wins the melee, and he does so with his flaming sword. And man, there is a shitload of metaphors in this little, teeny tiny little passage here. And the, the two I'm going to point out are about the War of the Five Kings and Azor high So the first is that In the War of the Five Kings, there's a whole lot of shifting alliances, and I think it's symbolized by this really terrific description. It's, quote, they fought with blooded weapons in a chaos of mud and blood, small troops fighting together and then turning on each other as alliances formed and fractured until only one man was standing. And that's something we're going to see in the War of the Five Kings as we have... Folks like the Lannisters allying with the Tyrells and then that breaking apart by the end of a Feast for Crows. Of course, you have the Starks allying with the Freys and then banding together and then them, and then the Freys turning on the Starks. So you have all sorts of these fractured, these alliances coming together, these alliances of convenience. And then they break apart later on until only one man was left standing. And that one man left standing is, of course, Thoros of as I alluded to, as I said earlier. And he – and I do wonder whether maybe George at this junction, I don't know for sure, but I do wonder whether George is symbolizing that the Azora High figure will be the last man standing at the very end, whether a man wielding a flaming sword as the Azor High archetype did in the story that Salador San tells to Davos in A Storm of Swords, Davos too. Is something that we're going to be seeing at the end of these, and at the end of the book series itself, that the Azor high figure, whether it's Jon Snow, Daenerys Targaryen, or a combination of several Azor high figures in the end, end up winning against it. end up winning the the second the war against the others in the Second Long Night. I'm not sure, but I, I do think that there's there's a lot in this teeny tiny little passage about the the, the melee and how it goes down and the outcome of
1: it. Yeah, that's a great catch. I love that as a, a metaphor for the series as a whole, for the war as a whole. It reminds me of the King's Moot when Aaron is thinking of it as one giant anthill when all the <laughs> factions are just yelling at each other and then they're r- interrupted by Euron and his horn right. representing the apocalypse, a three-horn blast just like the arrival of the others. And similar here, yeah, I think you can, like, with the political kind of giving way to the metaphysical with the magical character and his red sword of heroes being the only survivor of the melee. Right. On the other hand, of course, we know that Thoros' sword is not a, if not a fake, it's a cheap trick. Yes. It's it's, it's a burnt sword, not a burning sword to borrow right. from a salad or True. And that Thoros will kind of rediscover... The best part of himself, the reality of his faith and an ideology worth fighting for when he joins the Brotherhood, which, and the Brotherhood specifically stands in opposition to this image of the war of just a bunch of factions fighting each other for no reason. Right. Like the Brotherhood argues that that's folly and that's destructive and that all of that needs to be resisted. Yes. So on the one hand, this, this embodies the war and where it leads to. On the other hand, you could see there's a critique of, of that arc and saying this is actually not how you produce heroes. This is war as a game. And the reality of what it takes to produce a hero is what happens with Thoros and the Brotherhood. Yeah. So I think, I think it's both both a sincere expression and a uh, de- deconstructive one at the same time. But I agree. That's a wonderfully dense little passage there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Like Martin kind of inserts a bunch of really cool and excellent foreshadowing and small passages at points. And this is something that I think I discovered in this – maybe this, the, not this re but the one previous to this one, that it does seem to have some greater meaning for the series as a whole. But then, of course, you have everyone feasting at the end, Ned finally being in a good mood, a fully good mood. And of course, you have Arya and Sansa finally seem to have a repair in their relationship. Some talk about Siro Pharrell and how, you know, you know, Siro's just gonna, is gonna have me have Arya hunting cats the next day, which of course we're gonna be talking about in two weeks from now when we're talking about Arya 3, which is going to be a very pivotal chapter for unraveling some of The conspiracies of yet another character who enters in unawares to Ned's chamber in the hands tower at the end of this chapter and really brings the chapter all together.
1: Yeah, just like in Sansa 2, Eddard 7 ends with this intense, intimate conversation educating our POVs to what's lurking behind the pageantry of the tourney. We had Sandor educating Sansa about his own backstory and his brother and the allure of knighthood and now we have Varys... And forming an end of the conspiracies going on behind Robert's seemingly simple desire to fight in the melee. And I love how this is executed with Varys walking in in disguise, seemingly a stranger. And then he throws back his cowl and he takes over the chapter. The quote is, he smiled a plump, tight little smile. And for a moment, his private face and his public mm. mask were one. Awesome. That's such a great line. And that really gets at what's fascinating about Varys in this chapter. Is that, you know, up to now, he's, he's really hasn't been interesting at all. He's, we've been told how impressive he is as a spy master. He's fluttering around everyone obsequiously, but there's, there's been no hook to him, really, as, as a character in his own right. But this is the chapter that really changes that. This is the scene that really changes that. And it's Varus' equivalent of that moment in The Empire Strikes Back when Yoda drops his, like, goofy Muppet act when he's going, oh, ho, 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 to <laughs> Luke Skywalker and, like, stealing his food and stuff. And, when he reveals himself as the, you know, intimidatingly sharp wise Jedi master and starts staring Luke down and tells him, you will be afraid. Like that's, that's what Varus does here. He drops his, his hands fluttering uh, flamboyant uh, performance and gives us a sense of who he really is. And who he really is is genuinely intimidating. And yeah. Martin expresses that really strongly repeatedly in this chapter through descriptions of Varus's voice. Quote, the eunuch's cloying tones were gone. Now his voice was thin and sharp as a whip. And Ned is just kind of captivated by this change and just has to barely keep up with what Varus is telling him. It's it's, reve- it's revealing that I think the moment that Varus kind of comes forward and shows who he is, that this scene starts with him being unrecognizable, that he hmm. shows up in disguise and then he reveals his true self. It's suggesting that the Varus Ned has seen before is also a disguise, that the man with his perfumes and his compliments, that that's as much a disguise as wearing the hood and the boots like this all all of those were a mask and only when varus kind of gives that up do you really get a sense of who he is
0: yeah and varus is training as a mummer is in full vogue oh yeah here as well as in previous ned chapters where he's playing the part of being the simpering fool and kind of being the the obsequious individual who is all like oh how how dreadful i love that line from from ned six where he's after oh, yeah. the after the um after Janos Lind describes what's going on around King's Landing he definitely goes into Varr's the mummer role here but here he's Varr as himself and it's something we're going to see again in Aria 3 where we get Varrs conversing with Illyria Mopatis in the Red Keep dungeon and i do love this change in in Varys. And I think this gets repeated in some of Tyrion's chapters in A Clash of Kings, if I'm not mistaken, where Varys drops the act for a a few scenes. And whenever Varys drops the act, I think Ned pays attention, Tyrion pays attention, Arya pays attention, and we as readers are definitely in tune with what's going on. Because what Varys is about to reveal to Ned is going to shape Ned's arc going forward, and it's also going to reveal the part of courtly life that Ned just doesn't have a grasp of yet. And for that matter, will never fully grasp. But Varys does, and Tyrion does to a lesser extent in A Clash of Kings.
1: Yes, indeed. And at one level, Varys is playing the same role here for Ned that Ned played for Robert as the teller of hard truths Mm -hmm. that the other person does not necessarily want to hear. The quote is, You are the king's hand, and the king is a fool. Your friend I know, yet a fool nonetheless, and doomed unless you save him. Today was a near thing. They had hoped to kill him during the melee. Hmm. So then you're like, oh, okay. Varus is, is like giving the whole game away. He's, he's here to help Ned. You think for a second. He's, yeah. we're finally getting filled in on what's going on. <laughs> but that's, that's not entirely the case. No. Uh, because the spider still belongs to the world of court intrigue and he's not Ned's friend. <laughs> he makes that very clear. Mm-hmm. They're not buddies. Ned felt his anger rise. You knew of this plot and yet you did nothing. I command whisperers, not warriors. I will make another confession, Lord Eddard. I was curious to see what you would do. Why not come to me? You ask, and I must answer. Why? Because I did not trust you, my lord. Which is, which is great. I love this moment where Varus says, you know, Hey, Ned, you might think of yourself as a paragon of virtue, but I don't know that. Right. I can't, I can't read your mind. I'm going to assume you're like every other plotter and schemer in King's Landing, you know, all else being equal. It took your actions to convince me otherwise. And that's what's really fascinating about this conversation. As you said that. While Varus is admitting he operates in a much more underhanded and devious manner than Ned, he's saying, look, we are both, quote, those who are loyal to the realm. That's right. what we have in common. I've seen that in you, and that's what made you worth working with. As I said, what makes Ned really dangerous to the Lannisters is his friendship with Robert. It's What makes him dangerous is that which is, uniquely in King's Landing, not corrupt, not about ambition, not about greed. Right. I think that's a counter argument to the takeaway from the series and Ned's story especially that it's all about crude Machiavellianism and you just got to cut cut corners and break the rules and not get attached to anybody. <laughs> What's the line from heat? Like never get yourself attached to anything you wouldn't walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat coming around the corner. Yep. Like that seems to be for a lot of people the takeaway from Ned's arc. And I think you can see here an argument against that, that actually what made Ned so dangerous is that he wasn't that. Right. The fact that Robert would not kill him for Cersei, as Varus says. He would not kill you even for his queen and therein may lie our salvation. I think that's fascinating. That's what ke- that's what makes Ned not just admirable but dangerous.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating but it's also in my opinion humanizing for Varys because it shows us that Varys is not the wizard that Catelyn thinks of him in in Catelyn 4. He doesn't he has limitations in what his intelligence tells him. From this I think we can ascertain that Varys does not have anything resembling an intelligence network in the North. He doesn't know who Ned Stark is. Sure, he's heard stories, but you know, in King's Landing, everyone is presenting an image. Everyone has a persona that they're attempting to portray to everyone else around them. From Varys' conversation, it seems that Varys was evaluating Ned Stark to determine whether the image matched the person behind the image. And he makes the determination that it does, that Ned is not ambitious, that he is loyal to the realm and not loyal to his own self interest. And I think that's great. And I think it really, I, I, and again, like we, I think you had talked, we had talked to have this conversation several, several, I guess probably about a month and a half ago about Littlefinger and Varas when we were talking about in Catlin 4. But I begin to see why you like Varas much more as a conspirator because he is so f- fascinating. And so human in this moment. A lot of times Littlefinger seems to me to be, doesn't seem to have the humanizing aspects that Varys puts in here, that Varys is unsure, that Varas lacks the necessary knowledge in order to make judgment calls about characters in King's Landing. And he, he has a lot of great insights on the people in King's Landing. And now that Ned's here and has a better sense of who Ned is, he's willing to work with him. Is that what he's doing? I'm not sure exactly.
1: The takeaway from this chapter isn't actually much. Like, Ned and Varys don't form a working relationship in the same way that Tyrion and Varys do. Yeah. Uh, it's it's more that Varys is letting Ned know, hey, we're not enemies. If you have information, if I have information, we can work together. We have a mutual goal of keeping Robert Baratheon alive. Right. Uh, they're not so much co-conspirators as, you know, someone you can work with. But yeah, Varys uh, certainly plays a similar role that Littlefinger plays Sometimes in in that Sandor played in the last chapter, uh, which is uh, pointing out that the – making this systemic critique, that the institutions Mm -hmm. of Westeros are worthless, that they are riddled with hypocrisy and corruption, that they are unable to deliver justice. Paper shields, as he calls them. And yeah, I love that line. Try not to look so shocked, Lord Stark, (laughs) when he's telling him what seems basic things to him. Yeah, that the, the Kingsguard has kind of gone to rust. Uh, that b- multiple members of the King's Guard work directly for for Cersei, which is interesting. That yeah, this I think this is the first time that that comes up. Uh, that Boros and Maron work for Cersei, which is kind of a a, a consistent theme throughout mm-hmm. the books. Is, is is these two toadies uh, working working for Cersei? Yeah, he's expressing that that same concept. Unlike unlike Littlefinger, Varys doesn't seem happy about this. No. Like you do get the sense that. Once he gets his perfect prince in charge, he wants to change how this works, where Littlefinger just kind of wants to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. But Varus still works within that system. Like he says to Ned in the Black Cells, yeah, I could help you escape. Will I? No. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly here, you can Ned, from all this, from the information about the Lannisters trying to kill Robert, from the information about the systemic rot of the institutions in Westeros that will not protect Robert— his response is, uh, I imagine, similar to what Stannis and John Arryn first thought to themselves, which is, Robert must be told. If you, what you say is true, if even a part of it is true, the king must hear it for himself. But then Varus supplies the same conclusion that it seems like Stannis and John Arryn reached and why they began gathering evidence, which is, what proof shall we lay before him? My words against theirs? My little birds against the queen and the kingslayer? Against his brothers and the, his council? Against the wardens of east and west? Against all the might of Casterly Rock? Pray save for, send for Sir Ilan directly. <laughs> it will save us all some time. I know where that road ends, which is exactly what Littlefinger said at the brothel when he said to Robert and Catelyn, "If you accuse Robert or Cersei without proof, you, you'll dance with Sir Ilan before the words are out of your mouth." Yeah. So I, I think you can see Martin laying out that while Ned's desire to go to Robert and tell the truth is admirable, it's not necessarily the most workable solution.
0: You know, the, he makes that point directly later on, where he tells Ned. Look, man, like if you went to Robert and told him that they were trying to assassinate you in the melee, would Robert do anything?
1: No. Exactly. Yeah. Robert
0: Robert would go into the melee and be like, damn them all and damn those cowards. I'll fight them because that's who Robert is. So in Varus' mind, it, it reads like that He's his, his withholding of information wasn't in keeping with his intent to keep Robert alive so that Ned and Barristan could make the appeal to Robert without that foreknowledge and that Ned wouldn't let it slip that Robert's life was in danger and that because that would certainly push Robert into the melee and push him likely towards his death. Now, the question that I have about Varis in this scene and in the conversation he has with Ned is is he being 100% truthful with Ned? Is he holding back information? Does he have bad intelligence? And <laughs> I mean there there's I, 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 I still don't know I mean we're a dance with Dragons <laughs> Good was, answer
1: a dance Good with Dragons answer, was Jeff. published
0: in 2011. We're like 20 year 22 years since a Game of Thrones was published, five books in and I'm still up in the air about how much Varys knew about who actually poisoned John Aaron because he points to someone in this chapter and maybe this individual had a hand in the death of John Aaron, but he's either withholding or he doesn't know who was really behind John Aaron's death. So, I don't know. I I just don't know about Vars, and that's what makes him such a fascinating character. Is that lack of knowledge and information about how much Vars knows and how much of what Vars thinks he knows is accurate is indeed accurate. But as I said, he does point to one person as John Aaron's poisoner.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great point about how much Vars knows or doesn't know about uh, John Aaron's death. It never really gets clarified. Nor does it ever really get clarified. When he says to Tyrion, someone told Stannis, uh, someone whispered in his ear perhaps that, that Cersei's kids weren't Robert's, but that's never really clarified either. So there are definitely <laughs> some holes in Varys's backstory, which I agree are deliberately there and I think will work well with this character. Yes. But yeah, one, one hint at... How much he knows or what he thinks happened comes up at the very end of the chapter. And the uh, chapter wouldn't be complete, of course, without one more deconstruction of the <laughs> full appeal of knighthood and the rant- romantic fantasy tropes in general. Of course. And the, qu- the quote from Varus is, There was one boy. All he was, he owed John Aaron, But when the widow fled to the Eyrie with her household, he stayed in King's Landing and prospered. It always gladdens my heart to see the young rise in the world. <laughs> the whip was in his voice again, every word a stroke. Awesome. So you can see him kind of, I know it's so great. You can see him kind of making fun of the whole rags to riches story, right? Because uh, what he's saying is here is like, essentially, accusing Sir Hugh of poisoning John Aaron uh, or of knowing about the poisoning of John Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows if that's a sincere accusation on his part? The argument he's making is, yeah, look at what Sir Hugh's rags to riches story actually was. It involved killing his his benefactor, his patron, the person who allowed for his rise. So, right. How good can how good can you really feel about it? But, of course, as many have noted, including you, sir, hmm. uh, Varus is also describing the person who was truly behind Jon Aaron's death, Littlefinger. Yep. Littlefinger is also someone who all he was, he owed Jon Aaron Jon Aaron gave him this uh, plum posting in Town and then King's Landing on the small council. And when when Lysa fled to the Eyrie, Littlefinger stayed in King's Landing, yep. as Varus says, and, and prospered, as Varus says. So who knows whether that's intentional on Varus parts or not, whether he's having like a little clever joke to himself and actually describing Littlefinger, <laughs> even though he lets Ned think he's describing Sir Hugh, or if that's just an Easter egg from the author for us. Either way, though, I think it exemplifies the, the wheels within wheels within wheels plotting that Ned is talking about here. There's so many layers to what's going on that even if Varus doesn't mean to be describing Littlefinger, he ends up accidentally describing Littlefinger anyway.
0: I kind of think that he is describing Littlefinger, that it's not just an Easter egg from the author, because this is something that gets repeated again. You know that famous story in Clash that Varys tells about three men stand before the king, a priest, a sellsword, and a rich man. And then he tells the story about the shadows on the wall and how even a small man can make a very large shadow. And Tyrion thinks that, he's, that Varys is describing him. And there's been a point that's been made that Varys is not maybe not necessarily describing Tyrion in in that scene that he's describing Littlefinger, because Littlefinger is described as a small man, a shadow on the wall sort of thing. I'd like to think, and maybe this is my own headcanon, and I'll I'll accept that if it is, but I'd like to think that Varys is maybe testing Ned's intelligence, his actual intelligence here, and that he's – Alluding to Littlefinger being behind John Aaron's death, but he's trying to see if Ned is smart enough to kind of glom on to the implication that Vars is making that there was someone else besides Sir Hugh who had, has the same exact backstory as Sir Hugh has. But when Ned doesn't, Vars is like, okay, all right, fine. I'll do it. I'll do what I can in order to advance my own plan here to delay the chaos in Westeros before we're before Aliru and I are ready to actually start to actually start the chaos in Westeros. But this guy may not may not last for for a long time. And the fact that he doesn't understand the intrigues and doesn't understand the kind of subtle wordplay games and this, the game the actual Game of Thrones that Varus is playing, maybe I'll uh, I'll do what I can. But I it's not going to be a whole lot.
1: I think that's a perfectly fair point. And with that, that about Rum... Sums up our summary of the chapter itself. Moving on to our specific likes and dislikes for episode seven in a Game of Thrones. Uh, I absolutely love Varus' closing line in this chapter, which we borrowed for the title of this episode, <laughs> Asking Questions as He Slips Out the Door. Uh, it's an intriguing line in its own right, of course, and makes us want to learn more about the Aaron investigation and what questions were being asked. It perfectly sums up the razor's edge politics in King's Landing as a whole, that you got to watch out about asking questions, and it's a wonderfully snarky response to Ned's questions. Well, what got him killed, Ned asks, asking questions (laughs) like that one. So shut your act, my lord. (laughs) Keep it quiet, Ned, or you're going to end up with the same fate.
0: Hmm. Uh, Yeah. And what does Ned do? He keeps asking questions, doesn't he?
1: Keeps asking questions. How dare he? And what does he get for asking questions? Black Cell and his head removed, his head on a spike, although Varus does try to save him and himself gets fooled, which is was an interesting touch as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll get into that much more as we get towards the end of the book. Something I don't like as much is um, when Ned has that line about wanting to retreat from the politics of King's Landing to the clean simplicity of the North. Look, Ned might genuinely believe that that's a thing, <laughs> but... The elbow throwing politics we see later on at Winterfell via brands chapters when like everyone's trying to get in close with Rob and like you can marry my daughter, but I want these lands, and then all like the people who come to Winterfell in Clash of Kings, Wyman well, Manderleys, like I wanna build these boats, I wanna mm-hmm. marry this lady, everyone's I wanna marry that lady. Like they're <laughs> these yeah, they might be gruffer and they might worship different gods, but they absolutely play the Game of Thrones. And I think While Ned's line there might be set up for subversion, like Martin gets us to think that the North doesn't work that way, but then shows us it does, I think lines like the clean simplicity of the North have led to an erroneous belief in the fandom that the Northerners are somehow above the Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I get that Martin is going for a contrast between Ned and Varus in this scene. I think he just might have gone a little overboard.
0: Yeah, I think you're right in that Northerners play the Game of Thrones. I think that is communicated even in the Game of Thrones itself when Rob Stark calls the banners and you have the Umbers and you have and you have um, and you have great John Umber being like, I will lead the van. I was leading men when you were a babe in swaddling clothes type of thing, that sort of thing. But then you get it again, like you said, in the Clash of Kings in Brand's Clash of Kings chapters where you have some legitimate politicking going on and you get it. Hugely in *A Dance with Dragons*, where you have multiple, oh yeah, anti Bolton and anti Frey factions, you know, doing the same sort of Varys esque, you know, uh, Varys esque conspiring. I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's funny as this is probably four years ago. I think I wrote a very quick essay. I think I called it like the grand shitting conspiracy or something like that. Whenever Wyman Manderly is off taking an hour long squat, as they call it in A Dance of Dragons, he's conspiring with, seemingly conspiring with folks in order to bring ruin to the Boltons into the phrase there. So the North plays the Game of Thrones. It's not the clean simplicity that Ned believes believes it to be. Maybe it's a character moment for Ned where he's contrasting King's Landing with the North and he's kind of yearning for what he doesn't have right now, but... But yeah, it's not an accurate depiction of what the North is and how the North plays the Game of Thrones,
1: absolutely, sir. Now, what about you? What are your likes and dislikes for the chapter
0: so i i I think i've I've gushed enough about this chapter and about how much I love the conversations <laughs> so i i I focus my likes and dislikes on very minor thing on a very minor thing, and that being the comedy, so I had totally forgotten that moment of physical comedy in this chapter. When Sandra Clegane unhorses Jamie Lannister and how Jamie's helmet gets all twisted around itself that he can't remove it and he's blind stumbling around the tourney grounds while Robert and the rest of Westeros laughs at him until someone has to walk him over to the blacksmith to remove the helmet because it's, <laughs> it's like, so, it's like so twisted on his head. Like I have this, this image in my mind now of Jamie Lannister in his gold armor kind of waving his arms around and kind of til- tilting back and forth, tittering back and forth and, I think it's great. It's, 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 it's great. And while I, you know, I love the things about the intrigue with Varys, the great conversations Ned has with Barristan and Robert, the moments where Ned is acting the part of the father to Sansa, you know, sometimes I just need to laugh to relieve the sometimes unrelenting tension in these books. And, you know, here, George didn't disappoint. I love the idea of the beautiful, dashing Jamie Lannister looking like a total idiot in front of all of Westeros. It makes me smile inside and outside. <laughs>
1: Your wonderfully cruel, unsympathetic heart, Jeff. But absolutely, all the all the humor is good in this chapter. Every bit of it, right? Every joke works. Not a single joke that doesn't.
0: Uh, yeah, about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my dislike. Okay, it, it's I'm still going to talk about the comedy thing, since again we're talking about very minor things. But I I guess I do have one comedy criticism here, and again, it's extremely minor. I, I thought your criticism was was really well. Was really good. Mine is going to be so much more minor than that. Uh, Aw, hush. But I mean, these chapters in in A Game of Thrones are among the best in the book. I think these middle chapters of Catelyn five, Sansa two, Eddard seven, Tyrion four. Right? It's Tyrion four. Tyrion four or Arya three are, are fantastic, wonderful chapters that are among my favorite in the books. But you know, when Robert yells at Lancel to bring him the breastplate stretcher, which is something that you know is more is now kind of memified on social media, I I kind of roll my eyes. It. <laughs> It reminds me, I don't know, if we might have some folks who have either served in the military or currently serving among our listening audience, but it reminds me oh so much of being a young soldier and getting hazed or, you know, molded into a hardened warrior by the more experienced soldiers and NCOs who would helpfully tell us junior troops to get with supply and grab me some headlighter fluid for the Humvee or I need you to head over to the XO's office and request a box of grid squares or the ever faithful, go to your platoon sergeant and ask for the PRC, which in the military is a uh, is a radio and it's pronounced prick. Go and ask for the pricky seven. <laughs> but uh, so so, I guess what I'm saying is that this particular brand of humor plays out. To me, but that's definitely my subjective enjoyment or non-enjoyment of comedy more than anything else. Or perhaps that it's the traumatic memory of standing in front of the company supply sergeant as he stares at me with such utter contempt when I told him that I needed two bottles of headlight fluid for the Humvee.
1: No, I hear you, buddy. I think... A lot of the jokes in the books that have become kind of memed jokes from the show have lost their luster for me in that regard. I've just heard them too many times or seen them on too many t-shirts or sure. seen them on, on too many GIFs. Like it, the the spark has gone away. And yeah, the, the breastplate stretcher is one of those because they did strongly emphasize that in the show. Uh, so I agree. You know, I think about this chapter... I, I tend to focus on the more melancholy moments. And while the the physical comedy with Jamie does work, I agree. That's, that other joke is not the best.
0: Yeah, you, I almost wish we had seen that Jamie moment in the show where <laughs> we can imagine... Uh, Nikolai Costawaldo, like stumbling around. And I, I know some of our, our friends in the fandom, uh, will, would kind of like look aghast at that and imagine, imagine Jamie kind of all bent up and looking like a, like a mashed up bag of assholes. But it's still at the same time, like it would have been funny, <laughs> uh-huh. I think, to have this beautiful man in the form of Nikolai Kosterwaldu playing Jamie Lannister looking the part of a fool for a minute. But, you know. Such as, such is life, we can't go back to season one and rewrite that or re- reshoot it now at this point.
1: I'm sure it's a deleted scene. It'll come out at some point. I'm sure it will.
0: But yeah, so that I think does it for our likes and dislikes. Let's talk about some groundwork and foreshadowing because this chapter is chock full of it. And what's nice about this chapter in the groundwork and foreshadowing is that we will have a great theory discussion at the end, which is more of a minor theory, more, more than a minor mystery, more than anything else. But I think the groundwork and foreshadowing works to – it's more direct, I think, than you will find in a lot of chapters in the Game of Thrones.
1: Absolutely. I think it works on a number of different levels. What struck me is that both of the conversation scenes that define this chapter, Ned's conversation with Robert and his conversation with Varus, both of those really come back into play. That they're setting up the groundwork for later, much more intense and urgent conversations Ned has with these two men. Ned, of course, will later have a conversation with Robert on his deathbed, and that that echoes this one in a lot of ways. In both conversations, they bring up whether or not Robert is better than Eris, the overall worth of his reign, uh, his, his his friendship with Ned and how Ned is the only one who tells him the truth. You know, those things come up in both conversations. And same thing with Vars. Ned and Varus will have another uh, intense standoff when Ned is in the black cells, when he's lost the authority he had here. And again, the the same themes of... of the real power plays going on behind the scenes and whether Ned is prepared to handle them, and whether Ned is prepared to handle Robert. So if, if you know these these are the shots and later is the chaser. You know, this is this this sets up the the dynamic between Ned and these men and then later on I think those other conversations kind of finish the conversations that are begun here. This is the first half of Ned's showdown with Robert and with Varus and then they they finish up later in the book. Yeah, I I think my favorite of
0: those is Robert's, ah, just say I'm better than Eris Targaryen and be done with it. You can never lie for love or honor, Ned. I, yeah, exactly. I, I think it's my favorite because, again, you get that immediate kind of reveal in the next chapter that maybe Robert isn't better than than Aerys Targaryen. He's the one that's going to send men to kill Daenerys and Viserys and, you know, damn you, Ned, and damn your, your moral stance. This is This is what war is, you know. That's that's who Robert is. Is that he's willing to kill children in the event that they that he has a long standing grudge against their their family name. And I think that's to the detriment of Robert Baratheon, and does show him to be more
1: errors like than than anything else. Yes, indeed. Unfortunately, um, I think it's also groundwork for the Stannis Davos relationship. I think you can see that Martin laying the seeds for that in this conversation between Ned and Robert. The same sense from Stannis that. Davos is the one he relies on, that he will talk with intimately about his hopes and dreams and failings, and when Ned says, now that you're here with me, we can make this a realm to sing of, I get the same thought when when Davos comes back from the Blackwater and Stannis says, ah, the sea has returned me, my my knight of the fish and the onions, and there's a a little smile on his face, which is so rare for Stannis, and he says (laughs) he missed him. So that same sense from both Baratheon kings, that this is the guy who makes me my best self, and this is the person I need by my side when I'm making tough decisions. Stannis-Davos' relationship is different in several respects, but I think you can see Martin post-Game of Thrones thinking to himself, oh, I really like that Ned-Robert dynamic. I need that kind of dynamic with Stannis, too.
0: Yes, for sure. Although, of course, as we talk about in these past couple of Ned chapters, Ned is playing the Stannis role here. And Davos does introduce some interesting new aspects in the relationship of having someone who is willing to do the right thing at the expense of his king and you know that's also going to pay off again in eddard 8 where ned was willing to give up the handship and when robert makes the wrong call much as davos is willing to secure edric storm and send him to lys or send him to Lys, as opposed to watching the kid burn so yeah i think it's great it's a great point you make that george loved this dynamic between robert and ned enough i think he improved on it and made it better in the in the stannis davos conversations we're going to see in clash and storm and hopefully in the wind's winter maybe Maybe we'll see him in the ones later.
1: We'll see how that works out. But yeah, speaking of Ned and Robert, of course, Ned's worries about the Lannister squires surrounding Robert and how disquieted he is to see the, that blonde hair around Robert day and night pays off when Lancel slips Robert that fortified wine, leading to his death in the Kingswood. Uh, so that's some clear uh, groundwork being set up for that. Uh, Ned's musings about Robert's first bastard. He stops off one point to talk about. Robert (laughs) visiting the little kid every day, even after he lost interest in the mother. And Ned thinks to himself, oh, that kid would be older than Robert was uh, when he conceived her. That's interesting. So that sets us up nicely so that when we meet Maya Stone a few chapters from now in Catelyn 6, we can immediately intuit who she is.
0: Yeah. And she, as we talked about in our Robert episode, she is absolutely lovable in every single sense of the word. Catelyn, for all of her prejudices against bastards, even Feels affectionate for the kid. And I love how, and, and, you know, not to, <laughs> not to preempt our, our, those of you who haven't heard a Robert episode yet, but Robert's bastards do embody the best of who Robert Baratheon is. And they do bring out the features of Robert that are not so awful as we see some in this chapter and a lot in the next chapter, uh, and a lot in the next Ned chapter. And my son is just one who does bring up that courageous, tenacious aspect that just, you know, mixes kind of gravitate towards Robert at his best, and gravitate towards My Stone all the time.
1: Well said, sir. We also get Varys's description that the Lannisters might have hired someone to kill Robert in the melee, uh, with promising to promising them mercy and like you know some castle somewhere afterwards, but instead just cut off their head to keep them silent. That is, of course, hmm. when, what ends up happening to Ned. Hmm. Uh, that he he makes a deal with the Lannisters. He agrees to be a complicit partner and and cover up what they did but then ends up losing his head for it anyway.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very much that uh, you could tell that George was rereading some of his early work before he got to Eddard 15, where that conversation between Varys, him and Varys comes up and spoiler warning, Eddard 15 is my favorite Ned chapter in all of A Game of Thrones. And then we see that played out in Arya's final chapter in A Game of Thrones, where she witnesses Ned start making his confession in front of all the realm and then being executed for it anyways. I mean, I think it's it's interesting that the Lannisters are willing to... <laughs> that Bara's intuates that the Lannisters will may, maybe show mercy to the person. But, you know, as Littlefinger is going to talk about in Storm of Swords, the only way to actually permanently silence someone is to kill them, as we find out with Sir Dancis Hollard.
1: Quite. Uh, speaking of Littlefinger... Uh, we do get uh, some intriguing, subtle hints in this chapter that he was, in fact, lying about the dagger, if only Ned had been able to pick up on it. So,
0: in the Hand's Tourney itself, Littlefinger makes a bet with Renly, where he says, a hundred golden dragons, the Kingslayer. And Renly says, done, the Hound has a hungry look about him. And then right after Sandor Clegane defeats Jamie Lannister... Renly says, A pity the Imp is not here with us. I should have won twice as much. Now, this line really, really sticks out like a sore thumb on reread, because you have to compare it back to what Littlefinger tells Catelyn and Catlin for, which is, I backed Sir Jamie in the Jousting along with half the court. When Loras Tyrell enhorced him, many of us became a trifle poorer. Sir Jamie lost a hundred golden dragons. The Queen an emerald pendant, and I lost my knife. Her grace got the emerald back, but the winner kept the rest. Who, Catelyn demanded, her mouth dry with fear, her fingers ached with remembered pain. The imp, said Littlefinger, as Lord Vars washed her face. Tyrion Lannister. So this is our first hint that shows us that Tyrion's words that are going to come up in the in next week's episode from Tyrion 4, that he, he would never bet against his family are true. And you know, it's one of those subtle things that shows us that Renly is saying, "Yeah, if Tyrion had been here at the tourney itself, Tyrion would have bet on Jamie Lannister. He would never have bet against his family." That Ned doesn't pick up on it is is not. I don't think it's necessarily damning to Ned, but for us as re rears it does indicate to us that the, the Tyrion, that Littlefinger is playing the Starks false about the dagger's owner and what the bet was, and in and the, in the, in Joffrey's name day tourney. That resulted in the dagger allegedly being passed from person to person because that never happened.
1: Yeah, that's a great catch that this is a little bit of information that if Ned had just turned around in his head for a couple seconds, he might have been able to... To blow it open. Uh, same thing if Catelyn had really thought over what Tyrion and Lysa were kind of saying to her. Later on in the Veil vale chapter, Littlefinger just barely gets away with the scam he's pulling here.
0: Yeah, he does that. Speaking of Littlefinger, we have an, our our final little foreshadowing moment is remember that line that Vares recounts John Aaron saying about, quote, one who is less than a man would even think of poisoning him. That is John Aaron. Yeah. That's George kind of channeling some Lord of the Rings, which King of Angmar I am no man killed by Awen Shid. <laughs> and it's great. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we as reviewers readers know who killed John Aaron in Sansa's final storm of swords chapter. It's a woman, Lysa Aaron, on the behest of Littlefinger. But, you know, Lysa may not have been acting alone. Sir Hugh of the Vale may have been involved.
1: Or was he? It's possible, and that's kind of what leads us into our, our theory and discussion section for the episode, which is who ordered the death? Of Sir Hugh of the
0: Vale. <laughs> yes, so this is a minor mystery in the series. I think many people kind of maybe forget about it as you're going through the books. You kind of forget about Sir Hugh of the Vale, but there was a somewhat recent interview with with George, with George R. Martin back in 2012, where he was touring Spain, and someone asked him, "At the end of A Storm of Swords, we learned that Jon Arryn was poisoned by Lysa at the instigation of Littlefinger." But who ordered the death of Sir Hugh of the Vale? Cersei, Littlefinger, and George Armarden responded. It could very well have been either of the two. That's for you to decide. But it could also have just been a Gregor thing. He's a murderous brute and really needs no reason to kill someone. So, Emmett, who ordered the death of Sir Hugh of the
1: Vale? In your opinion. I would probably lean Littlefinger. Littlefinger wants Ned to continue on the John Aaron investigation, but he he doesn't want Ned to actually bust it open and find out any any secrets that might implicate Littlefinger. Yes. So lead, leading him on to Sir Hugh, but ensuring that Sir Hugh can't actually talk, does seem like it fits within Littlefinger's plan directly. But I do like Martin's implication that it might have been Gregor. <laughs> you got to include that little bit of chance and chaos in your master plan theory, and it's analogous to, well, I think, I definitely think that. Littlefinger encouraged Joffrey to take off Ned Stark's head. Mm-hmm. It's You do got to preserve the part of your brain that thinks, well, maybe it was just Joffrey on his own. Maybe that was just Joffrey being sadistic in that moment. And that kind of that kind of randomness is important to incorporate as well, I think. That sometimes the whole world can turn on a, just a decision like that. So I lean Littlefinger, but I, I like preserving the possibility that it was just Gregor. What about you, sir? Yeah,
0: I, I can see your points for sure about Gregor, about Gregor being Gregor. It's also... Noted in this chapter that Ned has never spoken to the man, and Gregor doesn't seem like the person. I, I guess, I guess, I guess, I kind of if, if it's Littlefinger, and I, and I do lean towards that as well. I would have enjoyed perhaps seeing the conversation between Littlefinger and Gregor clicking <laughs> like what it actually yeah, really like, like, hey, Gregor, I need you to kill this guy in the tournament. Okay, or, or something. I mean, I, I mean, what's what's the what's in it for Gregor? I guess is is what I'm saying. Now there's been like some theorizing that there is maybe a little finger that this is maybe evidence of like a little Littlefinger alliance here. That Littlefinger is like, hey Cersei, Ned seems to believe that you had something to do with the death of John Arryn, and he's thinking that Sir Hugh of the Vale is the person who is behind it. We need you to get rid of Sir Hugh of the Vale and make it look apparent. But I think it's that's a little bit unlikely at this juncture because it reads to me, that the Cersei Littlefinger alliance comes at the end of a Game of Thrones because they're. Yeah. Yep. It, it has it has to come after Littlefinger brings Jennifer in on the conspiracy, hires him, and then reveals that Ned Stark is planning to unseat Joffrey and name Stannis as the king. So, I, for some of these more difficult theories, I like to turn to folks who have done a lot more thinking and written a lot more well than I have about it. And one of these people that we frequently cite is Stephen Atwell, who has a great theory as to what was actually going on here. And I'll quote it like this is from his analysis, actually, of A Game of Thrones Sansa 2. And I, I do recommend, if you guys have not checked it out, to read Race for the Iron Throne, where Steve is going through A Song of Ice and Fire chapter by chapter in a similar way that we are, though he's doing it in written form as opposed to the audio format. So here is his quote about it. My hypothesis, and I'm not the only one who shares it, is that Littlefinger arranged to have Sir Hugh killed. Consider the following. Littlefinger is only one of two people who knows of his importance, the other being Varus, and was almost certainly the source of Sir Hugh's sudden windfall that allowed him to fight in the tourney in the first place. He also had the means and opportunity to either rig the list to place Sir Gregor up against Sir Hugh, knowing that his psychotic nature would make him the obvious kill shot, or to simply approach him in a tavern and pay Sir Gregor to kill the inconvenient knight. But the most significant factor that leads me towards this being part of the Littlefinger conspiracy is motive. As part of his larger project of steering Ned's investigation, Littlefinger piques his interest in Sir Hugh and then arranges his assassination in front of the Hand, which, as he's going to be talked about in Eddard 7, will further convinces Eddard's belief in the Lancers as the main conspirators and denies Eddard a source of information on... While making it look like Littlefinger is his ally. I, I really like Steve's description of, of the conspiracy and why Littlefinger was behind this particular death. And I do think it's interesting to have Littlefinger in Eddard 5 talk about, ah, well, you need to look up this guy, Sir Hugh of the Vale, but you can't go yourself. You need to send Sir you need to send Jory over to him. And then Littlefinger implicitly then going to Sir Hugh of the Vale and being like, listen. The Captain of the Stark Guards is going to come to you, you need to be as difficult as possible. You know, use your status as a knight in order to deny him any information. And on the other hand, here, then having him rig the list in order to have Sir Hugh killed in front of Edward Stark really makes it seem like the Lannisters are behind Sir Hugh's death. And, and having a and having a Lannister bannerman kill Sir Hugh really makes it seem like the, that the Lannisters have something to gain in the death of Sir Hugh of the Vale. And then Varys. Varus is really kind of a wild card in all of this, and that what Varys's role in it is. As we talked about in the Varys section of this podcast, I really don't know whether Varys truly believes that Ser Hugh the Vale was killed by the Lannisters, or whether he knows or suspects that it's Littlefinger, but is not about to reveal that to Ned at this juncture. I mean, like I said, there's so many open questions about what Varys is doing at this juncture in the story. We get a little piece of it in the next Arya chapter— but it's still only a little piece of it.
1: Yeah, you make a great case there. I think uh, Atwell does a good job pointing out that Littlefinger's motive stands out strongly, and I think you can see him laying out the breadcrumbs for it in Edward five. But yeah, it's such a—it's a small mystery in passing. And you know, I think as we said earlier in the episode, Sir Hugh is important primarily, like, for thematic reasons about knighthood and the romantic illusions giving way to death and decay and corruption and all that more than it is, you know, the answer himself in terms of who killed him. True. But yeah, especially when you have Varus's little line at the end linking Littlefinger and Sir Hugh together as the two boys who owe John mm-hmm. Aaron everything. I think I think you can see Martin at least implying, maybe not caring enough to outright say it, but at least implying that Littlefinger was responsible. Yeah.
0: I mean it's it's an interesting question that still is is an open question too. You know, even twenty two years after the publication of A Game of Thrones, we're still discussing whether Sir Hugh of the Vale was killed by Cersei, killed by Littlefinger, or whether Gregor just did it on his own. And that's, you know, it's again it's a testament to Martin's writing ability that we are still in these this kind of debate phase about events that occurred five books ago that still don't have resolution by the end of a Dance of Dragons. And I don't know that necessarily that Martin will reveal that Sir Hugh of the Vale was murdered by on on the on the behest of someone necessarily but you know it, it does lead to, to good discussion in the fandom and good analysis of the different conspiracies that work in king's landing and again it's a testament to martin's writing that we're still discussing it 22 years after it was published in the game of thrones
1: yes indeed sir so i think that pretty much sums it up for Eddard seven in a game of thrones thank you so much for listening everybody
0: yeah thanks so much and as always please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play Acast Stitcher, Podbean, SoundCloud Anywhere you can find us please leave us a review because that helps folks find us and we'd love having more folks joining us in our little fun.
1: We uh, always appreciate your comments and support and and critiques and everything else or your emails and questions so keep sending those our way. You can uh, find us at notacast, at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter. Our email is notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Our Patreon, if you haven't checked it out, is patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Personally, you can find me at Poor Quentin or at poorquentin.tumblr.com.
0: And you can find me at B. Fish on Twitter, B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is politics, viceandfire.wordpress.com. So, join us next time for our very perilous trip through the mountains of the Moon with Tyrion. Fours he encounters the clansmen, argues with Catelyn, and begins to sow doubt in Catelyn's mind about whether he was truly responsible for the assassination attempt against Bran Stark. Man, I'm looking forward to that chapter again. These middle chapters are among my favorites in this book.
1: Yeah, the veil vale plot's going to be a lot of fun, sir. Especially as we get closer to the introduction of your namesake, the Blackfish.
0: Here we go, man. Only a few chapters away. Only a few chapters yes, away. Indeed. Yeah. So thanks, everyone, for listening again, and we will see you guys next week.
1: Take care, everybody.